this the city of Chicago. Chicago. In Chicago, the trial of Jesse Smollett begins today. Smollett's the actor accused of lying to police in 2019 when he reported he was the victim of a hate crime in the city. Chip Mitchell from member station WBEZ reports. Jesse Smollett says he was headed for a late-night bite downtown when two men yelled racist and anti-gay slurs and a Trump slogan, then beat him, poured bleach on him, and wrapped a noose around his neck. Within hours, it was national news. Tonight, Jesse Smollett, a star on the hit television show Empire, is recovering from multiple injuries after police say he was brutally beaten on this Chicago street in a possible hate crime. Chicago officials said more than two dozen police officers worked on the investigation. Their suspicions soon pivoted and focused instead on Smollett. Eventually, according to authorities, two brothers with ties to the actor said he had recruited them to stage the attack. This announcement today recognizes that Empire actor Jesse Smollett took advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career. In February of 2019, Smollett was charged with felony disorderly conduct, and the city's police superintendent, Eddie Johnson, spoke to reporters. Why would anyone, especially an African-American man, use the symbolism of a noose to make false accusations? I'm also concerned about what this means moving forward for hate crimes, that hate crimes would now publicly be met with a level of skepticism that previously didn't happen. There were more twists and turns. The county's top prosecutor recused herself. Later, her office dropped the charges, igniting a firestorm of criticism. A judge then appointed a special prosecutor, and last year a grand jury brought six new felony counts. A few months later, Jesse Smollett gave an interview and raised doubts about the charges. There's also two other witnesses that saw Whiteman, that saw exactly what I say that I saw. The actor also took aim at the expected testimony by the brothers, pointing to how long police held them for questioning. They were in there for 47 hours. They continued to say I had absolutely nothing to do with it. And then they changed the story at the last minute. Smollett has received support from some activists, including Aislinn Pulley, a founder of Black Lives Matter Chicago. CPD has a regular practice of violating human rights and forcing confessions by people who were actually innocent of the crimes that they were being accused of. Any logical person's first reaction should be to be skeptical. Polly points out the Smollett case came just a few weeks after the sentencing of Jason Van Dyke, the police officer convicted of second-degree murder for shooting teenager Laquan McDonald. Brown University sociologist Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve studies Chicago policing and is concerned about all the attention on the Smollett case. It's really distracted from some of the pressing issues in the criminal justice system right now, especially the ones that we're confronting during a pandemic. You know, overcrowding in the jail, COVID running rampant in the jail, understanding whether people should be on electronic monitoring, and then the ongoing issue of police misconduct and police reform. Jury selection in the Jesse Smollett trial is set to start this morning. The trial could last all week. For NPR News, I'm Chip Mitchell in Chicago. Just a week after her third request for bail was denied, Ghislaine Maxwell is facing new charges. Ghislaine Maxwell is accused of finding and grooming underage girls to be sexually abused by her ex-boyfriend, Jeffrey Epstein. This is on top of six charges uh, Maxwell was already facing tied to Epstein's alleged sex trafficking network. Ghislaine Maxwell, the British socialite and one-time lover of disgraced child abuser Jeffrey Epstein is behind bars facing trial.
Opening statements in the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell begin today in a Manhattan federal court. Maxwell is charged with trafficking underage girls for financier Jeffrey Epstein to sexually abuse. It's alleged that she groomed them and in some cases participated in the abuse. Jeffrey Epstein died in a federal detention center in 2019. It was ruled a suicide. Maxwell has been in jail since 2020. NPR's Jasmine Garz will be following the case. Jasmine, people are probably pretty familiar with Jeffrey Epstein. Tell us some more about Ghislaine Maxwell. Sure. Maxwell is the daughter of the late media mogul Robert Maxwell. Uh, In the 90s, she was in a romantic relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. She's charged with multiple counts of trafficking minors for Epstein between the mid-90s and the early 2000s. She maintains that she is innocent. Okay, so what's her defense expected to be? There's a few things. Uh, First, they are likely going to argue that there is no way that Maxwell can get a fair trial, that she is, in essence, being tried for Jeffrey Epstein's crimes, a sort of trial by proxy. The other argument is that she's already been found guilty in the court of public opinion. This is a extremely public case. Uh, I was at the jury selection a few weeks ago, and this was the question that kept coming up for potential jurors. How much time do you spend on social media? How much do you know about this case? How much do you follow tabloid news? There have been a lot of high-profile names attached to this story, Jasmine. So what do we know about who's going to testify? At least four women who say they were underage and preyed upon by Maxwell will be testifying. What has been raising some eyebrows is that one woman, Virginia Jufre, will not be participating. She is one of the most famous accusers who says when she was 17, Epstein and Maxwell started flying her around the world for sex with very high-profile politicians, royals, billionaires, And she's the one who has named names uh, like Britain's Prince Andrew, former New Mexico governor Bill Richardson, and former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak as some of the important men she was forced to have sex with. She has also accused former President Bill Clinton of partying on Epstein's island. And all of those men have denied uh, the accusations. Are any of those expected to testify? There is a lot of mystery around who the witnesses will be for this case. And what also remains to be seen is whether or not Maxwell had co-conspirators, and if so, will they be called in? How much we find out about that is unclear. Uh, There is a possibility that the government is investigating uh, the possible co-conspirators separately. Uh, One more thing. What took so long to bring Maxwell to trial? Well, you know, the the court system has been absolutely backed up uh, by the pandemic, and it remains to be seen how this plays out uh, in in coming weeks. Already, there are a lot of restrictions for journalists uh, coming in because of social distancing. And and yeah, it remains to be seen how it plays out right now. NPR's Jasmine Gars in New York. Uh, Jasmine, thank you. Thank you. As we turn to Barbados, which has just become the world's newest republic, at a ceremony on late Monday night, Dame Sandra Mason was sworn in as the first president of the Caribbean island. Barbados became an independent country 55 years ago, in 1966. But Queen Elizabeth remained the official head of state 
until now. Many other former British colonies, including Canada, Australia and Jamaica, still have a similar arrangement with the British monarch. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley had pushed to cut ties to the Queen, saying it was time for Barbados to break from its colonial past. The move comes as calls grow for the United Kingdom to pay slavery reparations to Barbados. Ahead of the ceremony, Barbados held a national service of thanksgiving, where Barbados Senator and Reverend John Rogers spoke. Prince Charles traveled to Barbados to attend the ceremony when Barbados became a republic. He acknowledged Britain's, quote, appalling atrocity of slavery in the Caribbean. Barbadian singer, actress, fashion designer Rahana also attended the ceremony, where she was declared a national hero by Barbados's prime minister. We go now to Bridgetown, the capital of Barbados, where we're joined by David Kamishang, Barbados ambassador to the Caribbean community, or CARICOM, longtime advocate for reparations, author of the book It's the Healing of the Nation, the Case for Reparations in an Era of Recession and Recolonization. David Kamishang, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you talk about about the ceremony on Monday night and what it meant, certainly far beyond simply a ceremony, the new Republic of Barbados. Yes, it was uh, a very historic and moving occasion. In fact, for me, it started on Saturday, um, well before Monday night, when we officially opened our revolutionary square. Uh, so it was a whole um, weekend of um, really celebrating the best of our of our heritage and our historical tradition. Of course, Monday night was when we installed the new president of Barbados. It was the night on which um, we bid farewell um, to British colonial rule. Um, that was symbolized in a very concrete way when the colors the flags of the military units, the Defense Force and the Coast Guard and the Governor General's colors, they were marched off of the um, parade ground um, in view of Prince Charles and to the plain of All Lang Syne, that old things were passing away and a new order was being installed. So um, very, very moving, very historic, I would say. Um, 55 years overdue. It really should have happened on the 30th of November 1966, when Barbados became an independent country. But back then, um, for whatever reasons, and the, you know there are many reasons we can speculate about, we made um, two um, compromises on our constitutional sovereignty and independence. We corrected one compromise in 2005 when we broke our legal system away from the British Privy Council and installed our Caribbean Court of Justice as our highest national court. And so we, we dealt with the second compromise um, on Monday when we moved away, not just from the Queen, but also from the concept, from any concept of hereditary rule, installed our own native um, president, but also a president who is put in place by a democratic process. And Ambassador, what continues to be the legacy of 400 years of uh, British uh, colonial rule? Well, you know, the legacy is still there. We are still we are still a work in progress. Um, 
Uh, Barbados was known as Little England. Barbados was, in fact, um, Britain's mother colony in the Caribbean. Um, you know, the Virginia colony was established in 1607. Um, Barbados from 16 from 1625, and because of the the Sugar Revolution was really pioneered in Barbados, and the whole system of slavery-based plantation production um, was was pioneered and perfected in in Barbados. Um, the the seminal um, slavery laws of the British Empire um, were the 1661 Barbados Slave Code which was subsequently taken to Jamaica and then from Jamaica to the Carolinas and across the, 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 um, the 13 colonies. So Barbados was a, a center of, of British power, um, economic power, political power, military power, um, cultural power. The historians tell you that around the turn of the 18th century, Barbados, little Barbados, was more important in trade to Britain than New England, um, Carolina, New York, and Pennsylvania combined. I mean, it, it sounds um, crazy in the 21st century, but back then, sugar was like, like a, a narcotic drug. And um, so Barbados developed this system of um, this, uh, the, the production of super abundant profits on the basis of the super exploitation of African labor. So, that, um, you know, it's not going to, you don't get rid of, of the imprint of that history so easily. So we can still see the colonial era in um, land ownership patterns in Barbados. Um, there was uh, the, a landless proletariat in Barbados. Black people were deliberately kept, kept landless. Um, we can see the imprint of those years in the health profile of the current population. Barbados probably has the highest incident in the world of diabetes and, and hypertension, the product of centuries of, of living in a high-pressure um, environment on those slave plantations, which were really the world's first concentration camps, and being subjected to uh, an extremely um, deficient um, uh, diet. And then, you know, you look at the whole, the, the world's international economic and political order. Um, the, the, the reality is that formerly enslaved and colonized nations and people like those of the Caribbean, including Barbados, have been inserted in that international order in a structurally um, subordinate and exploitative manner. So many, 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 many um, remnants of those centuries of enslavement, of colonial exploitation and domination that we are still, we are still trying to undo. And, uh, and this whole issue of reparations, uh, what are the prospects or possibilities of, 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 uh, of continuing to press and win some, for, uh, some form of reparations, especially in light of the fact that the British Empire, having been one of the biggest in world history with so many still co uh, commonwealth or former colonies of, uh, of England, the, the precedent that would set uh, for, the, uh, for the United Kingdom? Yeah, well, you know, you know, when you have a cause that is just and righteous and, and rooted in law, um, you are confident of success, but it means that you must pursue it with passion and determination. Um, we, the, okay, we, uh, you know, 
Barbados is part of the Caribbean community. That's an organization of 15 member states, full member states, and five associate members. The associate members are still British colonies. The member states, uh, 14 of them are independent nations, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, Haiti, etc. And um, the, the Caribbean community really laid the foundation for its reparations claim way back um, in 2001 at the United Nations World Conference Against Racism. We consciously embraced that World Conference as a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to put the issue of um, reparations, the issue of the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery being crimes against humanity, and the issue of reparations on the international agenda. So said, so done. Um, uh, Twelve years later, in 2013, our heads of government came together in a CARICOM summit and agreed that we were going to launch a reparations claim for native genocide, for the, the genocide against the indigenous, the original owners of the Caribbean, and for African enslavement. We were going to launch that claim not only against Britain, but against all of the European powers that were implicated in native genocide and African enslavement. So we, uh, we, es we established a CARICOM reparations commission. Um, that commission is guided by a prime ministerial subcommittee on reparations headed by the prime minister of Barbados. And we, made, we have made our claim to the national governments of, of Western Europe, including Britain. Um, needless to say, um, our initial approach to them has not elicited a positive response. We have said to them, look, this is the history. This is what you did. You, you, you systematically um, underdeveloped us. You know, you, you siphoned off our, our resources the, the, for generations the fruits of the labor of our ancestors, you siphoned off um, to the capitals of, of Europe. And we are saying to you, you can't simply walk away with your ill-gotten gains. You must come back to the scene of the crime, sit down with us, and let us discuss um, how you can help to repair some of the damage that you have done. So, so Ambassador, reasonable I, approach. They, they have not responded positively thus far. We know we are going to have, it is going to be a struggle. Our idea is that we must develop an international mass movement, an international cause celeb, similar in size and scope and power to the anti-apartheid movement of the 1970s and 1980s. So it's a work in progress. David Kamashang is Barbados Ambassador to the Caribbean Community, or CARICOM, and the Association of Caribbean States. Living a nightmare, they telling his dream. Look what they did to Martin Luther, bullet holes in our kings. And they wonder why we never believe. And they wonder why we never believe, nigga, we poor. Young niggas warned about that corner store, but the chinks on that. And you claiming that's your block, who you think on that? Quick sand in the hood and we gon' sink on that. You should think on that. Poison water out in Flint, they let them little babies drink on that. They don't care about us. 
This week, we've been meeting people in communities that could be affected by the infrastructure package working its way through Congress. One place already familiar with a critical infrastructure need is Flint, Michigan. The city has now almost finished replacing lead pipes that run to people's homes. It cost close to $100 million money from a settlement that the state reached with residents after the government created a massive public health crisis by switching the city's water source, which poisoned people who live there. Well, with tens of billions of dollars in the infrastructure bill aimed towards clean water nationwide, our co-host Ari Shapiro returned to Flint to see what lessons that city can offer the rest of the U.S. Pastor Alan Overton was one of the people who sued Flint and Michigan state officials, resulting in that settlement to get the lead pipes replaced. He carries himself with gravitas, wearing a suit, tie, and cufflinks. We just celebrated uh, anniversary here. Congratulations. Thank you. And he tells me there's one thing that could always strip away that air of buttoned-up poise, drinking from a water fountain. I'm a big kid in that aspect. I like water fountains. I like to see the water squirt up and try to get into my mouth, but I'm not a fan of it anymore. <laughs> That's so sad to hear. Yeah, well, it's reality. Here in Flint's Christ Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, he's had all the water fountains turned off. Most of them have been removed from the building. There's one still in the church basement, covered in a big trash bag. Pastor Overton pushes the button, and nothing comes out. I don't work. That was poison. Right next to it is a water cooler that everybody uses instead. Pastor Overton's mistrust of tap water goes beyond fountains, even beyond his hometown of Flint. He was recently in Ohio. We were out on vacation, and I had my grandson with me, and I was like, whoa, we'll buy some water. And we weren't even in Michigan. So now I buy some water. Let me just buy you a bottle of water. I don't trust water fountains anymore. Anywhere. Anywhere. You hear this sort of thing a lot from people in Flint. They've been on a long, hard road for years. In 2014, their government pumped water into Flint homes that corroded the lead from service pipes. And for months, officials insisted the water was safe. Internal emails have shown that they continued to tell people it was drinkable, even when state leaders knew it was poisoned. Today, more than 90% of the lead pipes running to people's homes in Flint have been replaced. The water gets tested for lead, and it's clean. But Pastor Overton says the trauma has not gone away. The worst part of it all is that you trusted people that you thought you could trust. In the government, you mean? In the government. If you can't trust the government to tell you the truth about water, then we got some serious problems in America. And can that trust ever be rebuilt? No. I think you can appreciate that our pipes are like straws. You see that? They're just like drinking water straws. Earlier this year at a House committee hearing on the infrastructure bill, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha testified remotely from Flint. On the video screen, she held up the first lead pipe that was pulled out of the ground in the city. She's a pediatrician whose research revealed that kids in Flint were being poisoned. At this hearing, she told lawmakers that pipes like this one belong in the Smithsonian. I look forward to the museum exhibits and the history books showcasing that time when the leaders of our great nation, you guys, boldly took action to invest not only in our drinking water infrastructure, but also in the foundation of our nation's greatest and most valuable resource, 
our children. Four months later, I asked Dr. Hannah Atisha how she feels about the infrastructure package that the Senate ultimately passed. The folks on the air can't see me, but I'm giddy. I am absolutely giddy um, when I heard about the inclusion of the removal of lead pipes. Um, this is something that we should have done generations ago. We've known lead has been a poison um, literally for centuries, and we've really lacked the political will to do anything about it. We've, we've kind of punted the ball. Lead poisoning is a very familiar phrase. But can you put some meat on those bones for us? Like, what does lead actually do to kids? It actually lowers IQ levels. It impacts behavior, leads to developmental problems, attention problems, focusing problems. And we also know that it's a form of environmental racism. Um, poor kids, black and brown kids, communities of color are disproportionately shouldering the burden of, of lead poisoning and other environmental contaminants. When Michigan first declared a state of emergency over Flint's water crisis in 2016, I met a woman there named Jenea McDonald. She and her husband were born and raised in Flint. And when I first met the family, their boys were two and six years old. I don't know any way to explain to a six-year-old why you can't take a bath anymore every day, why you can't help mommy wash the dishes anymore. So I told him it's poison. And that way he'll know I'm serious. Don't play with it. We've checked in with her regularly ever since. Now her boys are 8 and 12. The younger one has developmental delays, and she wonders whether it has anything to do with the water. When I meet Janae McDonald again outside her home in Flint, she wears a red t-shirt that says, Living My Best Life. It is so good to see you. I'm vaccinated. Can I give you a hug? Yes! Okay. <laughs> There's a small above-ground pool on the lawn next to the house. She tells me she fills it up using the hose. Okay, so yeah. a little more confidence in the water than maybe I mean, the last time? We don't have much choice. Of course. And I can't stop living. She still buys pallets of bottled water every week for cooking, drinking, and brushing teeth. She keeps them in a corner of her kitchen. I see you've got your stack of yep, water bottles yep, here, yep. like five pallets. Oh, that's low. Yep. That's low. Yep. I'll fill that up Sunday when I go to the store. She also has a filter on the tap. She checks the light to make sure it's green. I try and keep a clear glass by the sink so I can fill it up to see. Mm -hmm. Put some paper behind it. I mean, who, who, who else is doing that? Are you guys having to do that at home? Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, the first time we came here, we spent a day with you. And a lot of that day was dealing with how are we going to get water? Like, you said you had joint pain from opening so many bottles. Yes. These days, what percentage of your time in a day is taken up with dealing with water? Uh, no, not really. I don't go and stand in any lines if people are donating water anymore. It can't consume my life anymore. Um, it's just part of my budget now. It's a significant part of her budget. She spends $50 a month on bottled water, another 100 a month on filters for the tap, and her monthly water bill from the city is almost $200 on top of that. Beyond the continuing financial cost, the pain she feels about what her government did to her family has not gone away either. It's not like we're talking about we watered our grass and it all turned brown. We're talking about our children drank this water and they're damaged. They're hurt for life. Yeah. I hear there's still a lot of anger there. Hurt. Mm -hmm. I think is the anger has went away and the hurt has kicked in and the disappointment in the nation we live in. I mean, we're in America. Everybody wants to come to America. And how dare we treat our own people so badly? How dare we? Yeah. And then shake our finger at other countries as if 
you know, shame on them. No, shame on us. Shame on us for not being able to take care of home, at least. She sees what happened in Flint as part of a larger pattern of racial injustice. She says it's not a coincidence that this all took place in a city that is majority black. When are we going to look at the true issue that it is a race issue? That's something that has been talked about a lot in the infrastructure package, helping disenfranchised communities, brown and black communities that often get left out. How hopeful are you that that part of it is going to follow through? Um, Hopefully someone will say and listen and hear that we can do better. Mm -hmm. And it's not hard at all. It's not hard at all. Just do the right thing. I think it'll be a game changer. Senator Jim Ananick is the minority leader in the Michigan State Senate, a Democrat, and he lives in Flint. He's been fighting to get justice for his city since the earliest days of this crisis. And he's thrilled that the rest of the country will now be getting money to replace lead pipes. Even if experts say the amount in this package is just a down payment on what it'll cost to finish the job. Everything went wrong here in Michigan and here in Flint. They did everything the wrong way you could do it. Uh, The motives were wrong. The way they handled it was wrong. The way they informed people was wrong. So I would say do the exact opposite of what happened here. What you're describing points to the fact that this is more than a health crisis. This is a trust in government crisis. Yes. So now you've got this infrastructure package where Congress in Washington is saying, we're going to come help you. How do you get citizens to trust the people in charge who are saying we're here to help you? We just take the money. You're saying don't try to repair don't, trust don't to repair. in Congress. No, don't do that. That is very pragmatic of you. Yeah, I can't be idealistic right now. I got to be just take the money, improve your communities, and we'll fix. We can fix trust in federal government later. The people in Flint may never trust their government again, but Janaya McDonald tells me she is still hopeful that the rest of the country can learn from what her city went through. It is long overdue, long overdue. This country is old. <laughs> let's let's be real. It needs a overhaul. Yeah. Inside and out. And it should not take for a whole city to to get hurt for someone to say, "Hey, um maybe we should start doing something about this." She would never have wanted her city to be this kind of an example. But now that it is, she says, maybe some good might come out of it. Like anybody, I would like to live A long life, longevity has its place. The loss of a trailblazing figure in fashion. Virgil Abloh, the Louis Vuitton artistic director, passed away at 41 years old after a private two-year battle with a rare cancer. Deb Roberts is here with more. Deb, it's hard to put into context, really, just how much of an influence he had at such an early age in fashion. Yeah, TJ, you're so right. And the fashion world is reeling from this stunning news. He was only 41 years old, but in his short career, Virgil Abloh smashed down barriers, blazed new trails, going where few black fashion designers had ever gone before. His offbeat style shaking up a state industry and leading to major success as he collaborated with some of the biggest names, Kanye West and Louis Vuitton, a first for that brand. 
He was a fashion designer whose creations were more than just clothes. They were about art and culture. Try this language in the back. From design to runway, Virgil Abloh, an architect and engineer, would reimagine fashion and along the way break barriers, becoming the first artistic director for men's fashion at Louis Vuitton. He was a disruptor. He came in and he changed the way the industry looked at fashion. And he was endlessly curious, endlessly creative, um, truly prolific, truly original. In a statement posted to his Instagram, it was revealed that Abloh, a husband and father of two young children, was diagnosed with cardiac angiosarcoma in 2019, a rare and aggressive cancer that attacks the heart. The signs tend to be fairly nonspecific. Living through a journey of two years with this disease is quite frankly a blessing and probably a testament to the multidisciplinary care. The statement also revealing that he underwent numerous challenging treatments, all while helming several significant institutions that span fashion, art, and culture. Through it all, his work ethic, infinite curiosity, and optimism never wavered. Abloh was also known for moving the needle in high fashion by celebrating black excellence with his designs on the runway. Ha, you can't stop my goal. His streetwear company, Off-White, rivaling Gucci in sales. The collection is very much about not being fashion, but like seeing the beauty in everyday life. In a 2018 interview with Hypebeast, Abloh explaining his reason for designing. I would say at the core is like humanity and education. Like we can use design, we can use trends, we can use brands, we can use good ideas to sort of share information. And so that's my main motivating factor and I just use it as proof. Proof of his genius. So many tributes pouring in this morning. Tracy Ellis Ross saying this is a devastating loss. And fellow designer Sergio Hudson expressing his sadness for a man who encouraged and supported him. Abloh's legacy is surely is going to be about det uh, determining to pull other designers along the way. He even created a scholarship fund last year in the wake of all the social justice protests because he wanted to help other young designers. He was mm. so busy and was doing so much. It's incredible to think he kept up that work and nobody knew. Nobody, nobody knew. knew. Even over the last few months. Uh, Amazing. Wow. What a legacy though. Yes, certainly. Thank you so much, Deb. We appreciate that. You see, but they're very unhappy about their appearance. I think there's an article in the handout about a woman who was, white woman who was in Hawaii. And she said that being around the Hawaiian people and the Asian people and she said she was tall and white and pale. She said she felt like a freak. And so then she started getting involved in genetic science. By one recent estimate, the human race creates or copies 175 exabytes of data every day. That's 175 billion gigabytes. And Internet giants like Google and Facebook are racing to keep up. They're building these exabyte data centers uh, that are extremely expensive, but so they cost you know billions of dollars to to build and maintain. That's Mark Bata of MIT. He says someday we'll reach a bottleneck. So he and others are looking at a comparatively archaic information storage technology, DNA. All the data in the world could fit in your coffee cup that you're drinking in the morning um, if it were stored in DNA. DNA is dense, he says, and unlike tapes or CDs rotting in your garage, DNA preserves very well under the right conditions. 
scientists have pulled DNA that's more than a million years old from the molars of frozen Siberian mammoths. So how does this work? Well, as we learned in, in biology, we think of DNA as that double helix, right? And each side of the double helix is a sequence of what we call bases, uh, the A, T, Cs, and Gs. Karen Strauss of Microsoft Research explains that the DNA used in data storage is not extracted from living things. Scientists make it in the lab, and they convert a stream of bits, ones and zeros, into the A's, T's, Cs, and Gs of the genetic code. Her team has shown that it is theoretically possible to write DNA data at speeds of up to megabytes per second. That is the kind of throughput that we see in archival storage devices today. And so we think that DNA data storage will eventually be competitive with those technologies. Their work appears in the journal Science Advances. Mark Bata of MIT was not involved in the study, but he says if scientists can solve problems of cost and efficiency... Then, you know, the sky is the limit in terms of just storing everything that we ever wanted to and ever will need to. The question is whether we really need all those tweets and TikTok videos and spam emails to live on in perpetuity. Um, no. <laughs> COVID, COVID, pandemic, COVID, 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 COVID. Germany's government has approved new COVID rules for the country's millions of unvaccinated citizens. The new guidelines include plans for legislation that would make vaccination mandatory for almost all Germans next year. NPR Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz joins us now. Hi, Rob. Hey, Ari. How dramatic a change in policy are these new restrictions for Germany? It's a pretty big change. Uh, today, outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel met with incoming Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Germany's 16 state leaders, and they all agreed that the pandemic has reached a critical point in Germany. Infections, deaths, and hospitalizations have risen sharply this past month, and the situation just seems to be getting worse. So they came up with some of the tightest restrictions Germany has seen thus far since the pandemic began. Here's outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel announcing the new rules. And Ari, she's saying here that from now on, all cultural and recreational events throughout Germany, regardless of the incidence rate, will only be open to the vaccinated and the recovered. And it doesn't stop there. She said all shops in the retail sector will also be limited only to the vaccinated and the recovered, and that additional tests for the vaccinated may even be required for entrance. The exception here is for what are known as essential shops. This would include grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas stations. Other restrictions announced today dictate that bars and clubs can only operate if the incidence rate is below 350 per 100,000 people in a region. Most of Germany is well above that rate. And another restriction for the unvaccinated states that they can only meet with a maximum of two people from another household. Hmm. How are the German people responding to these new rules? Well, it's interesting. You know, ever since German states began to announce similar restrictions two weeks ago, we've seen a sharp spike in vaccination rates in Germany. We've also seen people waiting in line for hours to get vaccinated. So it's clear that despite millions of Germans exhibiting vaccine hesitancy, many people are taking a pragmatic approach and getting vaccinated so that they can continue to live somewhat normal lives. Now, of course, there are still millions of Germans who refuse to get vaccinated and will likely see more demonstrations here in Berlin from that group. But by and large, most Germans agree these new restrictions are long overdue. I mentioned these plans to make vaccinations mandatory next year. How is that going right. to work? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Merkel said an ethics committee will be asked to draft legislation to make vaccination compulsory and that Germany's parliament will likely vote on this early in the new year. This makes Germany 
the second country in this region to announce mandatory vaccinations. Austria did so last month, requiring its citizens to be vaccinated by February. Germany's leaders have been a little reluctant to go this route because of the country's history, and that's part of the reason Merkel wants an ethics committee to look at this. Government mandates are obviously a sensitive topic in Germany due to its experience in World War II and under Soviet rule, but Olaf Scholz, who's expected to be announced as the country's new chancellor next week, said this is an emergency and getting vaccinated is the only way that Germany can get out of it. You mentioned that these policies are in part a reaction to spiking deaths, infections, hospitalizations. How bad is it right now? Yeah, for the past few weeks, we've seen between 50 and 75,000 infections per day in Germany. Hospitals in the hardest hit states of Saxony and Bavaria are filled with COVID patients. ICUs don't have any more space and doctors there are already being forced to make horribly difficult triage decisions about who to keep on respirators. Health authorities say up to 6,000 people could be in intensive care units by Christmas. And this is happening because we still have 20 million Germans who are not vaccinated. It's NPR Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz. Thank you. Thank you. White supremacy is the sickness. As the Omicron variant of the coronavirus spreads, one early response is familiar from the start of the pandemic, travel bans. The U.S. restricted flights from several African countries. And even though a couple dozen countries all over the world have now identified the strain, those limits on travel from southern Africa remain in effect. We're going to talk about whether travel restrictions work with Yale Institute of Global Health Director Saad Omer. Welcome. My pleasure. Setting aside the specifics of these travel restrictions, can you say broadly whether shutting down flights can be an effective response in a pandemic? Well, shutting down flights can work, theoretically, to only delay the arrival of a a significant uh, virus. Moreover, in order for a travel ban to work, it has to be really early, and it has to be so drastic as to shut down all travel into a country by 90 to 95%. So yes, theoretically it can work, but it can't be a selective ban of flights from a few countries, and it can't be at a time when, you know, this current travel ban happened. We know now that even though the Omicron variant was first identified in South Africa, there's research suggesting that it was already in Europe at that point. So what did you think when you heard President Biden announce these restrictions on travel from eight countries in Southern Africa? I was a bit surprised. The ban, even in the early part was a bit perhaps unwarranted because it was unlikely to even delay the arrival of the virus, uh, which was the rationale given, because it wasn't shutting down. And and for understandable reasons, 90, 95% of the traffic coming into the the U.S., uh, it was only focusing on a few countries when even there were very early indications that the virus was already in multiple countries. On top of that, as part of the The concern is that this is not a policy without cost, because we know that it discourages countries from reporting uh, new variants. Uh, And it's in all our interest to find out uh, not just the existence, but the intensity of circulation of any new variant. Yeah, we are now seeing uh, leaders in southern Africa saying we're basically being punished for having been good global citizens doing the science, reporting the new strain. Uh, because of these travel bans. So do you think that as the pandemic continues, other countries where new, perhaps more dangerous strains might emerge could be less likely to reveal that to the world, having seen what happened in South Africa? Yeah, that's the fear. Because if you think about if you are a health minister in Central Africa and you are seeing some initial data 
and you have that incentive to say, why do I have to be the first one to report? Because if I do so, I will face domestic pushback for being a little too naive to report this and then having restrictions imposed on my country uh, selectively. Uh, the selectiveness of that ban is, uh, is very concerning to a lot of these countries and sets up really bad examples. Last year, the U.S. banned travel from China, where the virus first emerged. And then we saw many coronavirus cases come to the U.S. from Europe. And so do you think we could see something similar here with the Omicron variant? We're already seeing that. So it's like not only closing the barn door after the horse has left the barn, it's closing the barn door in the next farm over. It's not rational to do so, and it has costs. So Yes, we can see a similar phenomenon here. Are there things you think the U.S. could do in terms of international travel that would help limit the amount of Omicron coming over from other countries short of sealing the borders and not letting anybody in? Yeah, there are a few things the U.S. can do. Uh, more rational and stringent testing in terms of both testing on departure and arrival and quarantine for a select number of individuals, perhaps not everyone, and making sure that during the travel, People are safe and there's a low probability of infection, for example, by making sure that, you know, there's a masking requirement. It's okay to add on top of testing or actually desirable to add vaccination requirement. But the long-term solution, we can't get out of this pandemic, at least without a lot of harm, without vaccinating high numbers of people all around the world. There's no shortcut to that. Epidemiologist Saad Omer is director of the Yale Institute of Global Health. Thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Now, Bev Smith, you know her show on WOL? She had a white geneticist doctor last week. And he's talking about all the different kinds of genetic manipulation. That they can do. And you know the male hormones that would make a male aggressive? Like sometimes it's a need to control that. Now does that mean a vaccine? Do you all understand? More and more countries are reporting cases of COVID-19's Omicron variant tonight, and more are mandating travel bans. At the same time, advisors to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration have now endorsed the Merck Company's pill to treat the virus in high-risk adults. All of this comes as public health officials are emphasizing the need for global cooperation. Nick Schifrin begins our coverage. Today, from European capitals, where Omicron spread earlier than previously thought, to Eastern Africa, where health workers rushed to administer mRNA vaccines, the world wrestled with worry. I overheard of the fears about the Omicron variant, which is ravaging the world, so I decided to come for the jab. Many countries aren't relying only on jabs. At least 56 have imposed Omicron-related travel restrictions. But more than 20 have detected Omicron cases from Canada to Australia. Yesterday, Japan closed its borders to foreigners and increased quarantines, but today reported its first Omicron case. 
The World Health Organization has denounced travel bans, but today it also warned Omicron numbers could double or triple this week and suggested people over 60 at high risk postpone travel. And Moderna warned its vaccine would likely be less effective against Omicron. Chief Executive Stefan Bonsell told the Financial Times, all the scientists I've talked to say this is not going to be good. But U.S. officials today predicted vaccines could prove effective. White House COVID response coordinator Jeff Zients. Existing vaccines are likely to continue to provide a degree of protection against severe illness. In London, Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited a vaccination site and urged Britons to get their third shots. But many countries are still racing to give their first shots. Only about 10% of sub-Saharan Africans have received one COVID shot, less than one-sixth the rate of North America and Europe. Today, Secretary of State Tony Blinken reiterated the U.S. wanted to help vaccinate the world. We know, we know, we know that none of us will be fully safe until everyone is. The White House says it's donated more vaccines around the world than all countries combined, including 13 million to Southern Africa. Today, the problem is not only supply. The logistic capability of getting vaccines into people's arms in Southern African countries and in other low and middle income countries is really very difficult. And in fact, many of the doses that have been shipped have not been used. For more on all this, we turn to Dr. Richard Hatchett, Chief Executive Officer of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, one of the leading organizations, part of the UN's COVAX vaccine distribution program. Richard Hatchett, thank you very much. Welcome back to the news hour. Uh, today, the Netherlands announced that it had discovered Omicron variants last week, well before South Africa detected it for the first time. Uh, what does that say about efforts to prevent this variant spread? This variant has spread already around the world. I think as of today, it's already on all six continents. And, and the news from Netherlands, in some respects, isn't terrifically surprising. I, I think we will begin to understand its spread over time. I think what we what we need to focus on, obviously, is that Botswana and South Africa, in identifying this variant, recognizing that it, it has this increased mutational profile, has, has given the world notice and given the world time to prepare and to increase its surveillance activities. The Biden administration and other countries around the world have imposed travel bans in order to do what you just said, uh, to increase surveillance. Uh, are those travel bans effective? Travel uh, restrictions can provide some degree of slowing of spread. In this case, the virus already seems to be disseminated. I, th I think careful monitoring of, of travelers and, and the use of testing protocols, both before they depart and after they arrive in a new country, is probably going to be a more effective way to uh, you know monitor for the virus and allow travel to continue, because it's, it's very, very costly to impose these travel bans. Moderna's CEO today said that he did not believe the vaccines would be as effective against Omicron. Do you agree? I'm very concerned about it. I mean, I mean, looking at the mutational pattern that we're seeing in Omicron, we have never seen such a concentration of mutations in the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that binds to the cells. And it's got mutations that we know have been associated with reductions in vaccine effectiveness. Um, so I am concerned. I, I think it's really, really important to um, do the testing, uh, do the analysis, and understand, you know, just how much vaccine effectiveness may be reduced. I think it's prudent to begin developing new vaccine constructs in case, just in case, we need to switch over. 
from the current vaccine to a new Omicron-specific vaccine. And are the vaccine companies, uh, are rich countries doing enough uh, in order to accelerate that production uh, of the vaccines you're talking about? Well, very fortunately, we've, we've seen all of the, the major vaccine manufacturing companies, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J, they're all moving very quickly to develop new Omicron constructs. In fact, Pfizer and, and Moderna have both announced that they think they can deliver a new Omicron-specific vaccine early in the new year. That's terrific. At, at CEPI, we've articulated a goal for the world to be able to develop new vaccines within 100 days. I think Omicron presents a real-world opportunity to see what we can do and, and to improve our processes. You said something yesterday that caught a lot of headlines. Uh, you said that Omicron is, quote, the chickens coming home to roost. What did you mean? What we think we're seeing, at least based on what we understand right now, is that this virus, this variant has emerged in countries that have had very limited access to vaccine. And that means that COVID has continued to circulate at high rates in these countries, which provides it opportunities to mutate. Um, and, and, and so scientists for months have been predicting that the inequity of vaccine distribution was creating the exact kind of circumstances that would promote the emergence of, of new variants, potentially with the, the ability to evade our vaccines. The inequity that has characterized the global response to date um, has now come home to roost. We heard Dr. Fauci today say the problem wasn't only about supply, how much rich countries are giving, uh, but actually about problems uh, on distribution, uh, especially in Southern Africa. Is that part of the problem? Now that vaccine supplies are increasing, I mean, COVAX has now distributed around 575 million doses and, and the supplies are continuing to increase. We are beginning to see challenges in, in countries to receive this flood of vaccine and to distribute it. And so we do need to shift our focus um, to supporting countries' uh, ability to receive and dispense vaccine to their populations as rapidly as possible. That's going to be the big challenge for 2022. And are there not also problems, especially in Southern Africa, uh, of vaccine skepticism and widespread misinformation? How do we fight that? Well, that's a global problem. And, 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 and vaccine skepticism, vaccine hesitancy has different roots in, in different environments. It, it has emerged as a major challenge to, to vaccinating populations sufficiently to achieve anything like herd immunity. And I, I think it, we, we have to tackle that problem, but it has many different roots uh, you know, that contribute to it. Dr. Richard Hatchett, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. Health officials around the world are racing to get a better understanding of the new COVID-19 variant dubbed Omicron. This new strain was first detected in Botswana in South Africa, but new cases have now been confirmed in several more countries as far away as Europe and Asia, and those cases are rising. Here in the U.S., President Biden and his administration have been developing a strategy to counter Omicron, assuming it will get here at some point if it isn't already. Speaking this morning on ABC's This Week, the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said getting more Americans vaccinated is still the best defense. When you have a virus that has already gone to multiple countries, inevitably it will be here. The question is, will we be prepared for it? And the preparation that we have ongoing for what we're doing now with the Delta variant just needs to be revved up. And that's the bottom line of that 
is the preparation by getting more and more people vaccinated and getting the fully vaccinated boosted. Dr. Fauci's comments underline the importance of vaccines in the fight against COVID-19. They are also a reminder of the fact that wealthy nations like the U.S. have access to vastly more vaccine doses than do most countries around the world. To discuss that further, we sought out the perspective of Fatima Hessen. She's a human rights lawyer and founder of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. Fatima Hessen, welcome. Thank you. It's such an honor to be on the show. You've written that there is a kind of vaccine apartheid, uh, a vaccine nationalism between countries like South Africa and a small number of richer countries such as the U.S. What do you mean by the term? So when we talk about vaccine apartheid, which you'll remember it's a term we've been using since 2020 when the pandemic commenced, we warn that if you have a situation of the haves and the have-nots, if you have a situation of only prioritizing certain countries with vaccine supplies, then you will have the current global vaccination rates. So when we say vaccine apartheid, we look at the figures, for example, in terms of the global north vaccination rate versus what's happening in Africa. The current figure as of the end of November 2021 is 7%. 7% of people in Africa are fully vaccinated. Now, you can't scale up vaccination or vaccination rates if you don't have vaccines. And you won't have vaccines if you don't have timely access to vaccine supplies. When you talk about vaccine apartheid, you know, that harkens back to the ugly period in your own nation's history, rigid and violent structures set up by the earlier racist white regime there. To what do you ascribe this sharp uh, divide that you're describing as a vaccine apartheid now? I mean, I think that's such a great question because I grew up in apartheid. I know what it means to be a second class citizen or even a third class citizen. And this is what we saw in this current pandemic. Black and brown people in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa were told to wait. We were told that the knowledge wouldn't be shared with us. We should participate in clinical trials. We should contribute to scientific knowledge, but we should wait basically last in line, like we did during apartheid, for access to any kind of service, whether it was education or health, before we could get our vaccine. So we had a situation that played out this year which again was just really, really problematic because we believe the world has decided or those in power have decided that intellectual property protections and the, and the shareholdings and the interests of pharmaceutical companies are more important than human life. And briefly, do you think that's as a result of the financial considerations that you're talking about or a result in some ways that you applied initially about the idea that these are black and brown people? These are, are people of, of Asian and African uh, descent. Look, I, in my own view, I think it's a combination of two things. The one is that black and brown lives are dispensable. And we saw that with the HIV AIDS crisis, we had a similar situation in terms of how long it took for people to be able to access affordable life-saving technologies and treatments. And in this case, we're seeing it playing out with vaccines. But the second reason is because there is a prioritization of property rights over human rights. And I hope that the world has woken up in the last 72 hours, because this is exactly what we were warning about, that in order to get out of this pandemic, it's very different to the HIV AIDS situation, you've got to vaccinate everyone everywhere and fast. You can't have staggered vaccine programs around the world and think that you're going to be immune to the multiple variants that we're seeing and to the way in which this virus mutates. And you know, one really hopes that global leaders will come together now and say, okay, let us reset. 
let us have a reckoning and let us make sure that every person on the planet is able to get vaccinated with supplies that are provided in a timely and expeditious basis. So let's talk about a couple of the initiatives that have been uh, adopted. You know, I think prominent officials in the U.S. and other developed nations would point to the donation of many, many millions of COVID vaccine doses to developing countries. The U.N. has an initiative called COVAX aimed at distributing vaccines to poorer nations around the globe. How adequate are those? We've had a lot of promises of pledges and of donations uh, made by G7 leaders and G20 leaders. Our assessment and our analysis of the data shows that in most cases, only less than 20% of those promises have been met. The, the second problem with donations is that while they are not coming in fast enough or you know, they're not fully being honored, is that donations are not sustainable. They based on you know, political considerations often, they based on the whims of some government leader who decides that they will donate to certain countries and not donate to other countries, again, because of diplomatic, uh, what we call geopolitical reasons or factors. So donations are not sustainable. They're not equitable. They, they are not a just solution to how you actually address this pandemic. They may be helpful in the short term, but they're definitely not a long-term solution. Finally, what would you like to see happen now? We need to get vaccines really fast into Africa in the next six weeks so that we can address the figure of 7%. We need to at least get 40% of people in Africa fully vaccinated by the end of this year. That seems like a tough lift. So we don't think it's impossible. We believe that there are many countries sitting with stockpiles of vaccines. We believe that vaccines could be diverted. We believe that if there is a truly genuine equitable response to this pandemic, then you will prioritize getting first shots to people in Africa before you prioritize getting third or fourth shots to people in the global north. We've been hearing from Fatima Hassan, the founder of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. Fatima Hassan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me on the show. I think this country was built on gangs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this country still is run on gangs. Republicans, Democrats, the police department, the FBI, the CIA, those are gangs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The correctional officers. Mm -hmm. I had a correctional officer tell me straight up, we the biggest gang in New York State. Straight up. A scandal at the LAPD involving the police academy's gun store. Back in spring of 2020, a manager of that store, his name is Archie Duenas, was arrested for allegedly stealing dozens of guns and then selling them for cash. Now investigators say at least four LAPD officers and a deputy in the sheriff's department knowingly bought those stolen guns. And the LAPD captain overseeing the investigation says top commanders on the police force tried to hamstring her team's work. The LA Times took a closer look at this story, the officers charged in the case, and the attempts to protect those involved. And joining us now is Richard Winton, who covers crime and investigations for the Times. Hi, welcome back. Nice to be here, as always. Well, tell us what how this all originated with this guy who was managing the gun store. Who was he and what was he allegedly doing? Well, so he was the manager of the, uh, the, the, uh, the police and basically the Re- Revolver and Rifle Association's gun store. It's like a nonprofit. It runs facilities at the, the police academy. And so basically this guy, Archie Dunas, runs the gun store, counts the guns every day, never takes a vacation. No one else ever looks at the gun roster. Eventually... 
he accumulates too many days off, has to go on vacation. Goes on vacation, someone else counts the guns. They're 44 short. They count again, they're still 44 short. Investigations begin. Soon they find out that Archie Dunas has been selling these guns. He took them and sold them privately and pocketed the money. In fact, they recovered one of the missing guns from behind it, like his neighbor's shed where he'd hidden it. Um, but to this day, they've only recovered 34 of the 44 guns that he's, he took. He was eventually hmm. charged by the district attorney's office for these that. Okay, so they start an investigation and they discover that it doesn't involve just Archie Dunas. It could involve some other police officers. Tell us about how yeah. they came to that information. Well, they start to track the guns and they try to work out who, who could have acquired them, who may possess them. And then at least one of these cops registered one of these weapons. So they have the registration and they traced it to him. So then they started looking to who he might have sold. They tracked through his text messages, his communications, his emails, and came up with a list of these police officers and a sheriff's deputy who'd purchased them. Two of these people, it turns out, are LAPD captains, um, Jonathan Tom and Steve Emmerich. Um, hmm. Eventually, they seized weapons from these people. Some people's houses, they actually searched with search warrants. Some, at one point, Captain Tom even took the fifth when questions about what had happened. Um, they variously denied, you know, misconduct at various stages. Some of them now have already had their cases. Basically, they found there wasn't sufficient evidence to charge them. They couldn't show they knowingly knew what was going on, even though they mm -hmm. basically, when they did buy these guys from Dunas, they didn't pay anywhere near what those guns would typically sell on the open market for. So, you know, the question comes, well, shouldn't they have known? Shouldn't they have known the guns were stolen? You know, they know a lot about guns. And some of these people, what we did, what it uncovered as well is kind of a, a culture within a part of the LAPD for these, what they call selling and moving of large amounts of guns. One of these captains, it turned out, had owned 355 different guns. Wow. Over time. And that's an incredible arsenal. And when they did search for some of these, these places, they were, they, you know, the number of guns they seized or took into custody to examine was like, we're talking most of these protagonists here had more than 50 guns in their possession, which is a lot of a lot, for even the most, you know, well-trained police officer. Right. So what is their explanation for having so many weapons in their home? They were, uh, they were collectors. They said they were collectors. I mean, some of them still have at least one, two of these people involved still have are still being reviewed by the district attorney three of them they decided not to charge two of them they're still examining including uh, captain steve embrick um who had who's the one who had the enormous amounts of guns flowing through his possession and he was selling guns you know quite regularly this is, brings to question an issue which is uniquely california in california police officers can buy what they call off roster guns guns which aren't available to the public because they've got either the design of them makes them too large or they've got parts on them which aren't typically legal for the public to possess or they have large magazines, most typically. In other words, the, the limit for most people in California is very limited. Police officers have larger magazines, allowing them to essentially fire more shots. So there's a great, there's a sort of lucrative market for reselling some of these weapons. And so the question comes then is, are some of these people 
getting these guns and reselling them to make money, significant money. And reselling to each other. So selling them, buying and selling between law enforcement, members of law enforcement or to. Oh, it perhaps goes beyond that. The, you know, the real lucrative market is selling to others, selling these what they call off roster guns to people who uh, can't themselves buy these guns originally. I see. But you, there was, uh, the, the, yes, the, the bigger question becomes are they now effectively kind of brokers for these kind of weapons? And then there's access to certain kinds of weapons that are more lucrative and they get to buy them and the public doesn't. And there's sort of a reselling issue. And mm-hmm. in some of these cases, they discovered other issues. For instance, Captain Jonathan Tom, when they did a search on his house, they found a loaded weapon in an area accessible to a child. And he was subsequently charged by a Long Beach city prosecutor with a misdemeanor related to that. Meanwhile, the original guy, this guy, Archie Dunas, he was originally facing 25 counts and more than a dozen years in prison. And then he ended up just with probation. Why? Uh, Why? The district attorney of Los Angeles County has not given us an explanation why. Um, Yes, this man faced a dozen years in prison. It looked pretty bad for him. They have overwhelming evidence. The, the assumption by everyone involved in the investigation is that Archie Dunas would be doing some serious prison time because he was caught red-handed, essentially stealing and, on, and faced multiple, multiple counts, multiple, multiple allegations, tons of evidence. Lo and behold, middle of COVID, when things are real quiet, plea deal was made. He, he pleads to one felony count, and he pleads to a couple of misdemeanors, and guess what? He's back out on probation. But maybe he's part, he's cooperating. Uh, we got with no the DA's in, office. People in, people involved in the investigation say that's not what was going on. No, he's not. It's not like he's cooperating or did anything special for them. It's more a case of the other question raised is, well, why would the DA do that now? There's a lot of questions which raised. Of course, we also have several member, former members of the LAPD who are now prominently at the top, near the top of the um, of the district attorney's office, which raises you know several questions about well, how much independence is there really from the LAPD here? When you have you know, I think we have a deputy chief, an assistant chief, and two assistant chiefs and a deputy chief now currently working in the DA's office. Right? Richard Winton covers crime for the Los Angeles Times. Thank you. Thanks for your reporting.
As of this broadcast, four students have died and seven more victims have been treated for gunshot wounds. The suspect, also a student, was arrested at the scene. We'll start with the harrowing cell phone footage that was taken by a student locked down in a classroom. Someone knocks at the door who identifies himself as being from the sheriff's department. But the students and teacher in the classroom aren't so sure. Could it be the suspect on the other side of the door? Yes! Sheriff's office! Safe to come out! Yeah, he said it's safe to come out. Now, we're not willing to take that risk right now. I can't hear you. We're not taking that risk right now. Okay, well, come to the door and look at my bag, bro. No. Yeah, bro. He said bro. He said bro. Red flag. As chaos rippled across the community of Oxford, parents waited in horror to find out how their kids were doing. Dozens of schools across suburban Detroit cancel classes today, two days after a shooting at a nearby high school left four teenagers dead. John Yang has more. Judy, while many of the school districts said they were closing out of an abundance of caution, some cited safety concerns and threatening social media messages. Oxford High School itself is shut for the rest of the week as students and teachers mourn the dead. Madison Baldwin and Justin Schilling, both 17, 16-year-old Tate Meyer and Hannah St. Juliana, who was 14. A faculty member and six students were wounded, including a 17-year-old girl who's in critical condition. Students without physical injuries are victims, too, said Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald. What about all the children who ran screaming, hiding under desks? What about all the children at home right now who can't eat and can't sleep and can't imagine a world where they could ever step back, foot back in that school? The alleged shooter, who's 15, remains held without bail, charged and as an adult with murder and terrorism. In a radio interview today, the prosecutor said she's considering charging his parents, saying their actions went far beyond negligence and that the gun used seemed to have been freely available to their son. Michael Rice is Michigan Superintendent of Public Instruction. Mr. Rice, thanks so much for joining us. What more can you tell us about these, uh, these threats that led to these school closures uh, today? We often have copycat threats when you have a, a, an incident uh, like this. Um, we've had these sorts of things before, not simply in our state, but uh, in, in other states across the country, copycat bomb threats, for example, and, and they end up for uh, a brief period of time adversely affecting a, a number of districts in a, in a county or in a region of a state. Are schools going to, uh, some of these districts going to reopen tomorrow or what have you heard? Well, some of the districts, uh, I did meet with uh, all of the Oakland County superintendents earlier today, and a few of them were, were planning, had not closed, and were hopeful to uh, be able to be open tomorrow. But many had closed for today, were planning on being closed tomorrow in working with law enforcement, again, out of that abundance of caution to which you earlier referred. And I know you've also been speaking to officials at Oakland County High School, the school where the shooting took place. What was their message to you and what was your message to them? Well, well my message to them is that our, 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 you know, profound condolences to, to you. What, what an enormous tragedy um, this, this was. Uh, we stand ready to, to help in whatever way or ways that, that we can. Um, we have uh, connected the district um, to some national resources, some 
people that have helped out in Parkland, uh, helped out in Newtown in tragedies uh, there. They want to avail themselves of, of, of those resources. That's great. And, and if not, we certainly understand. Look, the, the good news is, is that when a, a tragedy happens, there's an outpouring of support for the affected school or district. Um, but it also puts a lot of pressure on the school or district. And, and we, we understand that the, the district has to sift through those potential resources and make determinations of what, what works best uh, for it and, and, and what perhaps they can uh, set aside. And the young man who's been charged with this shooting, there were, were, we're learning that there was concern about some of his classroom behavior. His parents were actually at the school for a meeting uh, the morning of the shooting. Are there things that you're learning from that that could be helpful as, as you move forward? It is very, very difficult to determine uh, for many, many, many of these incidents that a, a person is going to take action and if he or she is going to take action when he or she is going to uh, to do so. What can the state education system do, uh, not just to help this, this particular school get through this, but the schools across the state? How can you help them be safer and secure, more secure? John, I believe that our schools are, as a rule, pretty safe in the, in the state, and they are certainly safer uh, now than they were 22 years ago when Columbine hit. Uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, uh, three and a half years ago, or three and three quarters years ago when uh, Parkland hit. I think each of these has made us more cognizant about school safety and security. Uh, schools are much less open than they used to be. Schools are far more likely to be locked. Um, just a few years ago, several years ago, uh, schools were open, wide open in many, many, many cases. They're far more likely to be locked. Um, they are far more likely to be single point of entrance. They're far more likely to have buzzers, cameras, intercoms outside of the, uh, of the schools. What do you think about metal detectors? I think Detroit has had metal detectors since 1985. What do you think about metal detectors statewide? I don't think metal detectors as a rule are the answer. They may help you at a ball game, a basketball game, a football game. But for day-to-day -day work in and around schools, I don't think that they're the answer. The answer is uh, very strong communication within a community, uh, within a school community, within a broader community, uh, with young people informing adults when there are issues. Uh, very, very critical. If you see something, say something. You've also talked about mental health uh, uh, being underfunded. What would you like to see done in that field? There is now a greater understanding in the last couple of years, and, and in part a function of the pandemic, John, that children's mental health issues are real, they're substantial, they need to be funded, they need to be addressed. Michael Rice, Michigan Superintendent of Public Instruction, thank you very much. Thank you. A judge sent a bond of half a million dollars each for James and Jennifer Crumbly. They are the parents of 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly was accused of killing four classmates and wounding seven other people in a school shooting this week in the small town of Oxford, Michigan. Officials say that his parents enabled their son to go on that rampage, and both parents are now charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. 
Neither parent appeared in court for a scheduled arraignment on Friday. Police arrested them in Detroit early today. The couple has pleaded not guilty to all charges. Quinn Kleinfelter of member station WDET is covering the story. Quinn, thanks for being with us. Thank you. How were the parents taken into custody? Their lawyer had said they left town earlier in the week for their own safety and planned to turn themselves in. But early this morning, Detroit Police Chief James White says the police got a tip that the two were in a commercial building in Detroit. They surrounded the building and moved in. Uh, We were able to take them into custody without incident. However, they were very distressed as they were walking out. The chief says that they were not armed and they did not resist. What are the parents accused of doing for which the prosecutors consider them to be part of the crime? Well, it's equal parts action and inaction. Uh, law enforcement officials say Crumbly's father allegedly bought the murder weapon as a Christmas present for his son only days before the shooting. The teen supposedly showed it off over social media, and the father kept it unlocked in a bedroom drawer, which allowed easy access to it. The day before the shooting, prosecutors say that a teacher saw the teen searching for ammunition on his phone. The mother was contacted, and then she told her son in a text message, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. And then Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald says, on the day of the shooting, school officials brought the parents in to examine a note that their son had written, which ended with the words, my life is useless. A drawing of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, quote, the thoughts won't stop, help me, end quote. In another section of the note was a drawing of a bullet with the following words above that bullet, quote, blood everywhere, end quote. Between the drawing of the gun and the bullet is a drawing of a person who appears to have been shot twice and bleeding. Quinn, you can certainly understand why the school would be alarmed on seeing such a note from a student. What did the parents do? Nothing, according to the prosecutor. Uh, She says there were steps that could have been taken. Remember, this, this was a short time before the shooting began. And yet McDonald says the parents refused to act. Both James and Jennifer Crumbly failed to ask their son if he had his gun with him or where his gun was located and failed to inspect his backpack for the presence of the gun, which he had with him. James and Jennifer Crumbly resisted the idea of their son leaving the school at that time. Instead, James and Jennifer Crumbly left the high school without their son. The teenager was returned to class. Uh, Not long after, officials allege, he emerged from a school bathroom with a gun and began methodically firing down school hallways and into classrooms. The prosecutor says the parent's behavior goes way beyond mere negligence to the point where it is criminal behavior. Quinn, after all these signs, um, do officials say the parents did anything to try and stop a potential shooting? Prosecutor McDonald only notes an instance about a half hour or so after sheriff's deputies had taken him into custody when reports of the shooting began hitting the media. When the news of the active shooter at Oxford High School had been made public, Jennifer Crumbly texted to her son, quote, Ethan, don't do it. And James Crumbly called 911 reporting that a gun was missing from his house and he believed his son may be the shooter. Now, Michigan does not have a law requiring gun owners to lock weapons away from minors, but adults have been prosecuted before in such circumstances. Quinn Kleinfelter from WDET in Detroit. Thanks so much, Quinn. Thank you. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time, and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we 
that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling, or be it um, George Zimmerman, or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 4, 2021. So I have been told this is our weekly broadcast, the compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter-racist suggestions. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720 Seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Few things to share before we get to callers. Uh, hopefully, folks with some observations for the week. Uh, one, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, uh, visit my blog, racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, you'll see the PayPal button top right corner directly beneath that links uh, for PayPal cash app and Venmo cash app. The address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous gratitude to all of the investors uh, who have kept us on the air for 12 plus years Uh, much obliged I hope the context of white supremacy uh, has provided accurate information on what it means to be white what racism white supremacy is things that we can and should be doing to solve this problem immediately Uh, also you can visit my Amazon wish list Uh, it is linked under Gus T. Renegade or listed under Gus T. Renegade also linked on the blog 
again huge thanks to all the folks who have nabbed an item or two from the list over all of these years hopefully the context of white supremacy remains worthy of your time and energy all of that said white guests only this coming Monday Dr. Ryan Martin uh, will be with us normal time all of the cows programs we've had a pretty locked uh, time fixture for years at this point Uh, I think more than a decade at this point other than the compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific uh, and the global Sunday talk which is irregular you know so that we can get folks from around the world if it's not that all of the cows programs are at 8 p.m. Eastern 7 p.m. Central 6 p.m. Mountain 5 p.m. Pacific just like Monday Dr. Ryan Martin white man will be with us in the great state of Wisconsin uh, he'll be with, well, we could talk about the parade too, it'll be awesome uh, but his specialist, he is a white psychologist we'll ask him about the lame uh, American Psychology Association apology they just issued for racism uh, he's the dean of the College of Arts and Social Sciences uh, at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Uh, which is not the same uh, university that we were close to at the 2010 white privilege conference. But anyway, he'll be with us. He focuses on uh, anger, anger, rage, research, constructive ways for people to deal with their anger. I was interested in talking with him just around all of the, uh, we got the air rig, white air rage on the airplanes and such. They've been talking about that for the holiday season, uh, the January 6th, white supremacy insurrection uh, that they are still debating and trying to uh, adjudicate in some form Uh, the school shootings uh, and just regular shootings the uh, upheavals over mask mandates and all the rest in school it's just been white rage uh, in all areas of people activity really every single day Uh, so we'll be here we'll talk about that we'll ask him specifically about Uh, why white people are not being uh, identified more explicitly in some of these incidents because those are the folks who are angry and raging they don't really allow black people non-white people to come out in public and rage uh, in that manner we'll ask him about that too Uh, but that'll be Monday Uh, white guests only Dr. Ryan Martin Monday December 6th Uh, speaking of white guests we had Gail Lukasik on the program like two weeks back. Uh, she said she has functioned as a white woman. That's what's on her birth certificate. Lived her whole life as a white person. Found out late in life that her mom uh, actually on her birth certificate was classified as not white. Uh, and so she now includes that as a part of her, I guess, racial identification. Uh, We had a listener who asked, do you think Gail Lukasik, do you think she is a white woman in a system of racism? Or do we think that she is a non-white person who is just confused, thought she was white, now found out that she's not and is writing this book and all that? Which is it? I just said again, you know, she did say on the program that she has functioned as a white woman, been accepted as a white woman 
for decades uh, of her life and then just got this new information. But did people come to a conclusion? Did did folks think, oh, okay, yeah, this is a white woman on. She just sounds like a typical old white woman. That's who I'm talking to as a white woman. Or did folks think, hey, this is a victim of racism. She just she sounds like the rest of us confused folks. Or even if she doesn't sound like the rest of us, uh, she got this information. And I don't think she would be accepted as white. I don't think she'd be able to function as white. This is just another victim of racism doing what she does. That'd be good. Victim was curious. A victim who listened to the broadcast was curious. Uh, as for some of the reports that we heard uh, for this week, uh, let's see. I'll start uh, the segment on uh, the Jesse Smollett uh, trial in Chicago. I had forgotten all about that. That was way back in 2019, like so much time and so many things have happened since then. I think that happened even before COVID-19, if that's possible. Anywho, uh, now that they're having the trial and trying to go through and adjudicate, is he going to be prosecuted? I didn't know he was facing like felonies, like serious jail time uh, for all of this. If he is convicted, Uh, they didn't even mention in the segment that we heard just this week, Mr. Smollett. And if folks don't, well, you heard the segment about him. uh, He's accused of having this fake report. Uh, Just this week, Mr. Smollett's attorney black female victim of racism she accused the judge of lunging at her in the courtroom i'd never even heard of a such like they were i guess having a a sidebar and the judge said they didn't do such a thing and his attorney she said he did and they had a press conference about this like they were requesting a a a mistrial and wow not even sure what to say about all that, but that was just, you know, happened a couple of days ago. Uh, incidentally, within that report, they said that uh, they had some of the enforcement officials come out and announce. And I think they were non-white Eddie Johnson, uh, black male with the Chicago Police Department, come out and announce and say, hey, this is terrible. And, you know, he's uh, using racism to advance his career. And the impact this will have is that in the future, people will be skeptical when someone makes a charge or claim about racism that's already the case we didn't need this it's generally you come out and say that i think racism is being practiced or i'm a victim of racism it's like oh psh, i don't think that's what it is i think it's i mean that's what the metaphor knee-jerk reaction that's almost an immediate reflex i don't even have to think that i think is the the definition of reflex there is no thought involved it is an involuntary response racism no it didn't no, it's not. It's not racism. Can't be racism. He's not racist. Donald Sterling is not racist. Let's see. Next. Uh, the trial for so many trials. Uh, Giseline Maxwell. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, right? Literally partners in crime. She is on trial now. Uh, I said folks should be uh, paying attention. If I was an attempted parent, might have to sit with my child and watch at least portions of that trial or read some of the news clips or just be, you know, aware that this is happening. Uh, racism, white supremacy. You have to talk to your children about that. Sexual abuse. This system, white people do not care about children. Lots of child rape and just general mistreatment of children uh, but it would be mandatory and with this trial you have no idea they're talking about Bill Clinton is down here partying and uh, 
uh, Bill Gates is down here partying and Prince Andrew like you have no idea what sort of information is going to come out in the middle of this trial I know the Elizabeth Holmes trial uh, got uh, more attention and books and all that but wow the Jeffrey Epstein white people do not care about children at least pay a little bit of attention we'll try and do our part to assist uh, here on the cows but I think folks should be mindful of that one as well Uh, and they even had the tackiness they said that Maxwell, she was in a romantic relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Like, I don't even know what that means. Roman antics, romantic. Like, come on. They're raping children and have set up some sort of proud child prostitution ring globally. And you're going to say they're in a romantic arrangement? Come on. Uh, next, they had the segment from Democracy Now! My BFF, Amy Goodman. Uh, and talking about Barbados, uh, they're now going to be an independent republic, whatever that means, and no longer attached to England and having the Queen of England as their head figure and all the rest, whatever that means in a system of white supremacy racism. Um, I'm not sure how much will change day to day for folks in that part of the world. Uh, I didn't find it particularly surprising that they still had this many direct connections to the white colonial rulers uh, I think that's the, I think they said in the report that's the case for many of the so-called islands uh, so-called countries uh, that many of them still have those type of direct connections uh, to white people in France or Portugal or wherever it is um, they were requesting uh, talking about reparations uh, for Barbados for all the years of or even before I get to all that the reparations aspect is important before we even get to all that I thought that was important they talked about the enormous toll of slavery and sugar think about that for people that are trying to get sugar out of their diet like man the legacy of black people suffering around sugar tobacco is another one that you can put in you can think of sugar in a lot of different forms right like rum lots of different ways if you're trying to kick that uh, or minimize your or eliminate or minimize your sugar intake especially added sugar and processed sugar that's something that you can think about but I thought that was significant and it just it reminded me I just reposted the program the archive wasn't working of the American Slave Coast with Ned and Constance Sublet one of the points that they try to get across in their book early and in many of their interviews including ours 2016 Uh, that most of the black people stolen from the continent throughout that phase of white supremacy racism were not taken to this part of the world the so-called U.S. they were Barbados Brazil, the Caribbean Jamaica, those parts of the world that's in their book, many other parts of research there was so much rape here most of the stolen black people were not brought to this part of the world, just reminded me I had thought about this a while had not said it on the broadcast I'm aware that the use of the term I think it's ADOS African descendant of slavery so when they use that phrase do they mean black people in Barbados black people in Brazil black people in Jamaica the term if we mean Africa like if ADOS if that means black people who were stolen from the continent and enslaved yeah 
does that include like all of the I was like man if that if that phrase is being used accurately we would be right back at diaspora that's where we started from <laughs> like that was remember that that's real old school I bet Mr. Fuller remembers that the Negro diaspora uh, but yeah do they include them or is it no they're not included and if that's the case in my view it should be a more accurate title like I don't know uh, U.S. descendant of slavery maybe African descendants of U.S. slavery that might be more specific if we're just talking about black people who were enslaved here as opposed to all the rest of the niggers in the rest of the western hemisphere if it's forget the rest of them which VGQ victims guaranteed qualified people can't take that position but I think they should just pick a name that accurately reflects that or maybe maybe that's not the case people can let me know maybe they do include all those folks and you know I'll be they can set me straight as they say reparations they mentioned that in the report uh, I hope they get it I don't think that would solve uh, any problems for them or anyone else uh, but many of these so-called Caribbean nations and black people victims of racism around the world uh, are doing those efforts campaigning seeing what happens I will not hold my breath metaphor uh, let's see they had the segment uh, discussing the infrastructure package. They spoke with Janae McDonald. That was on NPR. Janae McDonald, black female. I think we've actually listened to a couple of those segments. Uh, I think the Flint situation, Dr. Wells used to talk about that as chemical and biological warfare. I think victims of racism attempted counter racists uh, should try to be mindful about that. Uh, that'd be another one uh, in terms of trying to be mindful about your water what you put in your body, how racists poison the entire planet, and the book we're reading right now, Countdown, talking about that sort of uh, poison and pollution, how that can uh, impact not just your health, but your ability to conceive a child and the health of that child. Anywho, I, so I try to be mindful of things that are happening in uh, with Flint, Michigan, and that's racism, white supremacy, lots of black people there. Anyway, in that report, I found it so appalling when the reporter went to speak white man went to speak with miss mcdonald and he's like hey can i give you a hug now i realize they've been talking to her for about seven years now they don't go and hang out with her every day i don't think i don't think they're facetiming and checking in and sending her water bottles and water filters and water tests and oh let me see your children wow i don't think that's happening uh, if you're a journey, it just it reminded me we just had Ron Lax on the program, the grandson of Henrietta Lax. White people, when they go and I want to hang out and oh, let's have a cookout and oh, give me a hug, girl, and all that. And just to practice racism, white supremacy, like just be a journalist. Like, I don't need a hug. If you want to bring some extra water, great. Star or not even Starbucks, Whole Foods. Uh, gift cards we can go shop and get more water great other than that no I do not need a hug from a white journalist just support the news and it just the incorrectness right they have journalistic standards this is NPR but beyond that like I don't recall I listen to NPR a lot every day uh, I don't recall segments where they have a white journalist go speak with a white person under any circumstances where they might go back and talk to the person repeatedly and it's oh come give me a hug and like 
just report the news man like Walter Cronkite is not doing all that give me a high five on the black hand side just report the news let's see have your children died are they developmentally delayed is your hair falling out do you test the water today it's interesting Miss McDonald she said in that report we don't have much choice that is the situation victims of white supremacy are frequently placed in not having much choice Uh, let's see we had lots of reports on the COVID-19 situation they have travel restrictions uh, on black people we've been two years into all of this now and I know they've had travel restrictions for lots I don't remember uh, them choking off white people and saying hey you all have been reckless rowdy you're not behaving correctly even Sweden right we've had folks on from Sweden why not travel restrictions there you all aren't even doing anything you're not doing mask mandates you're not doing any sort of restrictions or lockdowns no no folks from Sweden get out of here I don't remember that happening it was like Italy I think back when things were really bad there I don't remember any sort of immediate and I remember that they talked about it when it was so called Europeans white people from that part of the world when they were doing all the traveling and testing positive in March late winter early spring of 2020 I don't remember restrictions on folks from that part of the world maybe I'm in error but immediately people from the continent ah, and then they come out and say that oh man it looks like we might have had the Omicron variant in the Netherlands before it was in South Africa which would not surprise me not going to be any travel bans on the Netherlands, Netherlands I'm sure also thought it was important same thing that I've said for some time about the unvaccinated means non-white people where they gave the statistics they said 7% of the population on the entire continent of Africa has been vaccinated 7% now I said now even with that now by the time you really dig into those numbers to figure out now how, how much of that is white people in South Africa specifically or individuals classified as white who are in uh, north of the Sahara. How much of it is that? And then let's dig into how many of the people that are actually black on the continent are vaccinated. It would not surprise me at all if like out of that 70%, 90% of that is white people. Something, you know, absurd like that. Unvaccinated non-white people worldwide. And even they said at the end of that report, they said man I hope there's some sense of consciousness you know I hope where there were many but specifically in terms of talking about uh, it being vaccine apartheid they said man I hope there's some sense of compassion you know if we're going to deal with this uh, crisis correctly like as opposed to rich white nations uh, having booster shots and people getting a third and fourth and fifth shot maybe some of the people on the continent can get their first shot nope now you even have all of the vaccine resistance here in the states hordes of white people I'm not getting vaccinated my body my choice and all the rest of it right easily could be shipping out extra unused vaccines they've said that the whole time huge surplus of vaccines they could have been doing that a long time ago probably worldwide but at least the states my goodness and the gluttony 
I've heard that people saying that they've gone out. I've heard white people bragging about saying that they went out and got their booster shot, got their third, fourth shot, like uh, doing everything that they can, so-called, to stay safe, I reckon. Uh, Lots of that disparity, hoarding in terms of white people, hoarding vaccines and supplies, even while you've got all these white people saying that this is, you know, whatever they think it is, whatever Aaron Rodgers and his ilk think is wrong with the vaccine taking their stance all the while white people are hoarding it 7%. I mean, that's appalling. The pop, I mean, the millions, hundreds of millions, really, that we're talking about on the continent and 7%. Let's see. And within that segment as well, they said the reporter, he said black and brown people. Then he had to say, well, black people and Asian people. I never hear anyone say black and brown people meaning Asian people that's what I mean like you just get sometimes you get so careless in just throwing around these little metaphors and cliches and how people speak about white supremacy racism that wait a minute black and brown people yes the niggers and the brown people yes yes wait a minute no it's not really any brown people I guess you could have said black and yellow people but that might be a little tacky for mainstream media so then you had to say oh yes black and brown people I mean uh, the Asian people yes even though they're not brown, but whatever. The black people aren't really black, whatever. Phrase shouldn't be used to begin with. I said that for a long time. Uh, Let's see. And with, oh, we can get to that later. Uh, Let's see. We heard the segment about the L.A. Police Department uh, and the gun theft. They were selling the guns out of the LAPD gun store. I didn't even know they had a gun store with the LAPD. I learned something myself. Uh, and then uh, they can't even recover all of these weapons that have been sold, uh, that police are apparently buying some of these guns that are illegal, should not be trafficked. Enforcement officers are buying. I was thinking, why would enforcement officer be buying these illegally trafficked guns? Is this the ham sandwich thing that they're talking about? Remember that from uh, people who studied Louisiana when they had their corrupt police department, a ham sandwich uh, is slang uh, or criminal slang, really, uh, for a gun, a gun that can be planted, as they say, on a suspect so you can blame them for some sort of crime or what have you, a gun that typically cannot be traced. Is that why they're buying these guns? Why would they be doing this? The nefarious, they compared this. They said this reminded them of the Rampart days. I said, oh, man, that's the book club. We just read uh, City of Lies. That was all about the Rampart scandal and the assassination of uh, Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac Shakur and all of that never ending entertainment and scandal with the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, And then, of course, the whole Michigan situation. Lots that could have been said about that. Ethan Crumbly. Again, I have never in my life seen a white child uh, who was under the age of 16 tried as an adult I cannot think of one case I'm sure it's happened I just can't think of any instance of this happening and he's being tried on charges of terrorism never I cannot think of any white child in the US who's been charged with terrorism I would struggle to even think of an adult I don't even think they charged Dylan Storm Roof with an act of terrorism in South Carolina Maybe I'm incorrect, but I don't. That's not my recollection at all. All the shootings that they have here and, and hardly anyone gets charged with an act of terrorism. 
Why? And then they didn't even just stop. They are charged as an adult check act of terrorism check. And then charging the parents. They said that unprecedented all the school shootings that they have here. And then bam. Oh yes. The parents are negligent. Now I will say it is pretty unprecedented. At least what I've heard the evidence that they presented thus far with the parents conduct. They said the father James Crumbly bought Ethan the gun on Negro Friday. Black Friday. Now that is a holiday tradition. I've heard that before uh, where people go out and they get guns for Christmas gifts or guns for Black Friday or Thanksgiving or all of that whole holiday. That's part of the holiday season that we're in. Got to do some shooting. Got to do some hunting. Then He's apparently make, you know, articulating things. He's looking up ammunition at school and writing these notes showing people that are shot and bleeding like, whoa, you all right, Ethan? Let's do a check in and, you know, maybe we can get you some counseling or some therapy. They call the parents up to the school so they can do their due diligence. What do they do? They nothing. I almost did a rewind on that, but I didn't want people to, you know, make that make to think that I was making light of this situation or trying to joke around and be funny because I certainly am not, but I mean nothing. Not man. Let's get him a hug. Let's take a few days off of school. Let's take some mental health days. We can go shopping. We can go hunting. We'll spend some time together. What is going on? Why are you saying that your life doesn't mean anything? Talk to us, Ethan. Nah, let him and they don't even take him home they invite the parents to the school and they leave leave him there and then the shooting breaks out shortly thereafter I mean what in the world all three should be guilty I mean I don't know when the trial should be but if if the evidence as is presented is accurate and I cannot overemphasize I haven't heard it in the reports but I mean man this is the same state not that far away from Wisconsin Kyle Rittenhouse is 15 Ethan Cromley excuse me Kyle Rittenhouse 17 at the time of the shooting Ethan Cromley 15 I'm sure he saw some of that so that's been modeled and then talk about modeling right in Michigan they were going to kidnap the governor Gretchen Whitmer this time last year that's what they were talking about the huge pot it wasn't just kid they were going to kidnap and execute the governor that is the behavior that's why i said i wanted uh dr ryan martin on the program this monday white rage that's what's been modeled for a good two years really the entirety of white supremacy racism but intensely the last two years that's what's been modeled get mad might need to ball up your fist and bop somebody upside the head or the great equalizer as dr welsing said might need to shoot four or 10 or 50 people depends on how mad I am terrorism charges for a 15 year old white boy in Michigan what times we are in and that's another reason why I've been saying for a long time we're for the entirety of the pandemic about you know when you go out in public you want to be mindful take things Whoever that was, A plus, I'll at least say that is a metaphor, but it's a school situation, so grading would be applicable. 
whoever that educator was who saw him on his phone looking up ammunition, that's the sort of thing that I say you should do. Take that serious. You can tell that to your offspring. If they have classmates that are looking up stuff like that on their phone, talking about firearms and shooting, take that serious. Coworkers, that's the situation out of context that I brought it up in regularly. You have coworkers that are doing things like that that is totally unprofessional, unacceptable for a work environment should be uh, reported to human resources. Super that gives you an idea in terms of what they're thinking about. Why are you even thinking about ammunition while you're at school? Do that later on. You should be concentrating on your work. Aren't we reading Moby Dick? Read about the insurrection January 6th? Dangerous times, folks. Super dangerous. Uh, with all of that, uh, for this one broadcast, I do request that we not use uh, metaphors. Uh, we heard a bunch of them uh, throughout. One, they heard when they were talking about the situation on the continent with the vaccines, they said uh, when they were talking about imposing a travel ban on folks from the continent, uh, or at least some parts, they were saying that it's akin to closing the barn door while the horse is already out and then closing your neighbor's barn as well. I said, wow, we are really, we are going all the way with the barn metaphor, which I have heard before. That's a more popular one. Uh, but yeah, I would try to be more direct about things. If, if what we're saying is that this is not really going to help solve any problems, uh, that the virus has already spread beyond the areas where you are restricting travel, that's more direct than us talking about horses out of the barn and the door is shut and the neighbor's farm and lost the corn and all the rest of it. Like just be direct, precise, detailed about what it is that you're trying to explain as best you can. Sometimes that can be challenging, but the metaphors do not help uh, frequently racist. They will use metaphors like that to transmit ideas, concepts of white supremacy directly or indirectly and master deceivers. They will take two concepts and insist that they are identical. Frequently, they're not even close Uh, victims, myself included. Frequently, we are still learning. Sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our views. So we'll substitute an analogy or metaphor of some sort. And that just often adds to more confusion. Uh, If we could be precise exact direct with what we want to say that would be super appreciated Uh, i will remind folks uh no metaphors please for the broadcast uh the number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate If folks could take about five minutes to share their thoughts, observations, that would be great. Uh, Make sure that everyone else has at least one chance to share. Uh, If you have additional questions, thoughts after your five, uh, you can let everybody else uh, speak at least one time and then return, share whatever thoughts, questions you have. Also, if you know you are in a rowdy, noisy environment, uh, if you could use your mute button, that would be great. Uh, Just helps us to not have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, You can share. Then when you're done, mute your line. And if you need to share again, maybe you can get to a quieter area, unmute and share again. 
Much obliged. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, if we had any folks, if you heard the broadcast with Gail Lukasik, um, like I said, maybe what was that like 10 days ago or so? If folks heard that, uh, if you thought after hearing your conclusion, was that a white woman or was that a victim of racism who was just confused uh, about white supremacy, racism, maybe some other things, her racial identity as well. Uh, what was your conclusion based on what you heard? Or if you did some research, if you had any folks who like read the book and, you know, all the rest of that stuff, you can let us know that as well. Uh, let's see. I will get the switchboard. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Or I guess maybe give a second. Switchboard is being uncooperative. We'll have to see if I can work that figure figure out why it's why it's uh why it's being difficult let's see while i'm figuring it out i'll switch over and just try a different browser 2021 challenges abound okay different browser let's see if that solves it yes success spectacular 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, let's see first few folks who dialed in if you have a hand up commentary to share line should be open proceed can I be heard Greetings, yes, sir. Uh, thank you, guys, for taking my call. And uh, hello to everybody online. Um, I wanted to first start off by saying, um, to answer your question about the um, Gail Lukasik, um, I would err on the side of white, just to be on the safe side. And um, But I would love to ask her more questions about how she may have um, practiced racism, just to be, just to confirm. Um, um, I also wanted to uh, go back to, I guess, yesterday. I listened to yesterday's uh, broadcast, and I um, heard um, someone bringing up the uh, vaccination mandates out here in California um, about going to restaurants and whatnot. Um, Well, I went to a restaurant today. Um, I am currently not vaccinated, and I was not questioned or Ask to have a card at all. Um, so I hope to, hopefully that um, sheds some light on what's really going on. Um, uh, also, I think uh, you asked a question about the ADOS. What is the meaning of that? Um, I think it the A stands for American, not African, um, to answer the question. Um, um, about the, um, I guess, Ethan Crumley situation. I find it interesting that this situation is happening, you know, right after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Um, and I will love to see how this one is handled, considering that his verdict was not guilty. Um, so 
I guess I'll wait and see on that. Um, and right now, I guess that'll be it for now. I'll be my line. Thank you, guys. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, what part of California are you in? Because I know that did come up yesterday, and California is such a large region. Some things might change depending on, you know, whether you're closer to L.A. or closer to Berkeley and all that. So what part of the state are you in? Are you in? Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm in located in Los Angeles. Okay, Southern California. But, um, okay, Southern California. I'm sorry about that. And uh, just to be clear, I was in the city of Alhambra, and I was not uh, asked for my vaccination at all. Hmm. Much obliged. Uh, Much obliged. The state of California is supposed to be one of those areas where you're on speakerphone. Yes, you're on speakerphone. The state of California is one of those areas where it's supposed to be uh, proof of vaccination when you go out to like bars, uh, restaurants, as he said, I don't know the uh, sports contests. You want to see the, the Lakers or the Clippers play a game, uh, all that type of thing. You're supposed to show proof of vaccination, any large, I guess they have a threshold over the number of people and bam, you're supposed to show your card. Uh, they have the same sort of policy here in uh, Washington state, but that was stated yesterday. Uh, and then in fact, that was Z's mom. She said that about the school. She said she went to the school to check in to do some teaching and they didn't even verify uh, that she was vaccinated and all that. These are the children and we're supposed to be looking out for their health and all. Uh, much obliged for the clarification on Gail Lukasik. So we got one person air on the side of caution. Would have been great to ask more questions, but air on the side of caution. Think she's classified as white, suspected racist. Um, see if other people what they thought uh, ADOS he said it Af- uh, excuse me American descendant of slavery okay that would well much obliged for the clarification always appreciate that I would still have the same question though so does that include like Brazil in that South America right does that count or no are they is this just supposed to be just black people that are here U.S. nobody else counts does that include black people in Canada because they were in that's America too all that's the Americas does that does that include them too or no is it just it's just black people in the U.S. and nobody else just us they could have called it being goofy sorry anyway we'll get that clarified as we go maybe uh who exactly is included in all that anywho uh other folks uh if you have commentary to share uh not being on speakerphone is always helpful because it tends to uh, have a lot of reverb. Uh, so it ends up just being background noise, except when you're speaking. But anywho, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Greetings, sir. Yes. Uh, uh, as far as your question about uh, the different versions of America Uh, from my listening to the rhetoric uh, it seems to be isolated to uh, the American version that is identified as North America uh, I could be wrong, but that's most of the most of the talk is uh, about the people who are in what is called 
the United States of America. Uh, anyway, uh, the moment that I heard about the uh, incident in Michigan, I started some research with two questions. Uh, what was the percentage, the racial percentage in that area? And it came out to anywhere around 97 to 99% white. And the average income was somewhere around $90,000 a year, the average. Uh, so I had a, I had a pretty good idea on who was the killer. And I ended up being correct when I, you know, saw later, later on, uh, the way I think about it, I'm assuming that number one is a, what I would call a modern day sundown town, uh, of white people who either part of the fleeing population that left Detroit uh, in and around 1967 and afterwards, after the, the, the riots that took place in Detroit, uh, or if there were younger people, younger white people who wanted to be around other white people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a refined way of creating the same sundown towns that were existed you know, uh, a century ago. Uh, and in turn, by putting all of that effort and work of the white people, putting all of that effort and work into creating such a, a, uh, a place, I would figure that they do not, would not tolerate uh, the incident that took place. That's why they're going to be, I'm, I, I am, I could be wrong, but I would suspect they're going to be very harsh on all people involved. And it may be also some of the administrators at that school uh, because of what took place minutes, hours before he actually started shooting. Uh, so uh, stand by, <laughs> I would say, to that. Uh, I, I just suspect that the, the white people who put all of that work in to creating that environment uh, would not tolerate that type of behavior because it, it, could, it could really affect the work that they've done to in order to create that, that environment. So therefore, they're going to be pretty harsh. But anyway, uh, DCF program. Uh, today, I decided to show a brief film on Mr. James Howard Meredith uh, for several reasons. First of all, Mr. Meredith is still alive today. <laughs> He's still alive. Uh, a, and also some of the similarities based on the suggestions that Mr. Fuller has mentioned, you know, about the term uh, United Independent, uh, that 
that uh, the process of an individual victim of racist white supremacy uh, equipping themselves to uh, embark upon counter-racist uh, activity. And that was the epitome of this demerative. Uh, he did not encourage assistance from even other groups of non-white people, non-white black people. Uh, there were some assistance by the NAACP, but uh, it, it wasn't necessarily uh, his mission to involve anyone. He understood, according to what uh, he uh, uh, stated, that even as a child that he uh, was going to embark on some sort of venture by himself uh, that would be considered to be counter-racist. Uh, it just so happened to be uh, the University of Mississippi. Uh, he purposely strategized a means to that would end up forcing the President of the United States, at that time was John Fitzgerald Kennedy, to utilize the powers therein of the President to assist him into getting enrolled into the University of Mississippi. Uh, and he was successful, and he lived through it. He actually lived through that, and uh, about maybe three or four years afterwards, he decided to organize by himself a march. Uh, it was something about fear, March Against Fear. I may be giving the wrong title of it, but uh, uh, he was going to uh, walk from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, which is, from my understanding, somewhere around 200 miles, something like that. On the second day of the march, he was shot three times by a white male hiding in the bushes. Uh, in turn, while his time was in uh, care for his wounds, uh, several organizations of, of uh, black people and some white people uh, actually organized marches uh, in support of what he was doing. And in turn, he ended, he ended up, uh, once, he, once he got up, released out of the hospital, joined into the march. And basically, uh, a lot of non-white people also registered to vote. But the reason, the reason why I, the connecting, the connecting uh, idea that I had with those young people, those young people that I was talking to today, was you are in school right now. You're in school right now, and being in school in the situations that you're in that is constructive, Mr. Meredith has something to do with it, either indirectly or directly. It's essential that you have to have something next to your name that you can do, that you can transfer into what I identify to them as making a living, being able to preserve yourself best you could as far as a salary, that sort of thing, 
you need to be working very hard. This is a life and death situation that's essential that you're able to uh, accomplish that as soon as possible. Uh, some of the people that I was talking to were 15 years old. Within three years, in a lot of places, they'd be identified as an adult. Uh, 21 is not that far away, which would definitely, and everywhere, it would identify them as adults. And they have to do the best they can in those settings and ask questions on how to, as quickly as possible, obtain that goal. And uh, they took notes. They took notes, and uh, we talked about it. And it was pretty good. Pretty good session today. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. My uh, computer shut down while I was listening. There, I had to switch over to my phone and then get my computer back on. So, people on the live stream, uh, if you were listening there. Uh, might have been shut down briefly, but should be resumed for all the folks who uh, may have been listening online. Uh, feel free to just, I guess, refresh the browser or if you're listening on the app or whatever it is, refresh and you should be fine. Anywho, um, the much obliged for sharing about James Meredith. I'm such a huge fan of James Meredith. Uh, I feel like he's such a great example of uh folks have talked about in terms of trying to generate courage or be courageous in uh, trying to solve this problem. I think he is a fantastic uh, illustration, uh, his efforts, lots of great. Uh, he wrote about his experience. Folks can you know, read what he said. There are a number of documentaries on his experience uh, in uh, Mississippi. Uh, ESPN did a documentary uh, on it. Just a really uh, amazing figure, uh, James Meredith. Uh, I think lots of folks ended up coming to pick up the mantle after he was shot. Well, that's a metaphor, but lots of people came to resume, including Dr. King, after he was shot in Mississippi to resume his march against fear, uh, which I don't know. Right. Maybe such a thing right. is still needed. Um, lots to be fearful of in the system of white supremacy, racism. Um, yeah, I was going to try to see if Oakland County, the area in Michigan, in Michigan, that's what I was doing at the time that the my computer shut down. I was going to look at sundown towns to see if it was uh, mentioned in the text. And before I could even get to the page, whammo <laughs> hit me on the shutdown. So let's let's try it again. Uh, got everything rebooted. So let's see a little bit because Michigan was mentioned a lot in James Lawrence sundown town. Uh, and I think we brought this up before because black people don't just live willy nilly throughout the Michigan area. Uh, black people are restricted to very specific locate Flint, Detroit, a uh, few right. other locations here and there, but it's not just all, you know, dispersed. You can't just be in Saginaw and anywhere else you want to be out in Michigan. Like, uh, 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 it does not work that way. Uh, so let's see. So this is James Lowe in sundown town. Let's see what he says. He says, Oh, let me repeat what I just said. He said the concentration of African-Americans into a handful of suburbs is striking in many metropolitan areas. Long Island has the most racially isolated and segregated suburbs in the nation, according to the reporter Michael Powell, writing in 2002. About 10 percent of Long Island's population is African-American, but almost all black residents are bunched into a dozen or so towns from Roosevelt to Hempstead. 
Wyandank. Hope I said it correctly. Sorry, I've never been there. And Uniondale. Meanwhile, the two-thirds of Long Island's municipalities remained less than 1% black, and half of those had no black residents at all. In northern New Jersey in 1970, 89% of Essex County's 72,000 African Americans lived in three towns, East Orange, Orange, and Montclair. Meanwhile, only seven African Americans lived in Roseland and eight in Fairfield. By 2000, 327,000 African Americans lived in Essex County, East Orange, and Orange had gone majority black, but just 65 African Americans lived in Roseland and Fairfield combined. Similarly, 80% of the African Americans in Oakland County, north of Detroit, lived in just three cities. This shooting happened in Oakland County. It doesn't seem that the black people live in one of those three cities, but could be incorrect. Uh, but yeah, I thought it would be mentioned. Uh, I'm sure if I had more time to, to rifle through because Michigan was mentioned so, so much, I'm sure I could get more information. But yeah, I'm not surprised at all that they would pop up in Mr. Lewin's book uh, about yeah who lives there, who the victims might be, the shooter, everybody all the pictures that i've seen thus far looks like all of these folks would be classified accepted as white the crumbly family all of them all the victims uh the four or at least the four fatalities i don't know about the because uh, i think there were an additional six students shot uh who survived and then a teacher as well uh who was shot so i don't know if they were non-white or white but the all the photos and images of people that i've seen thus far victims uh and perpetrators looks like they would be classified as white uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if you have commentary to share number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, other folks uh, with us if you have commentary proceed hello greetings Irie in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. Hotep, everyone. Um, uh, prayers of wellness, mentally, physically, spiritually to everybody. Um, so I was, um, I would like to ask um, if there are any medical professionals listening, um, if they can, you know, comment in the future, like, I don't know, however they can um respond to this question. I really would like to know uh, if what what the side effects of Haldol, H-A-L-D-O-L are, because um, I reported uh, a few times or a couple times, I should say, that my son um, had um, experienced psychosis from using cannabis. And um, prior to him, I believe he was about 16, yeah. So um, they, uh, the doctors are trying to prescribe that to him, and we're trying to encourage um, uh, him now that he's 18, and they know that I cannot act on his behalf legally, which I'm working on with a power of a, medical power of attorney, but they were trying to get him to take a shot of it, and he refused it. 
but he told him he would take um, a lower prescription. Um, what I was able to find is that it has, uh, it affects motor skills. And, you know, that's concerning, obviously, because motor skills are, you know, they're important. Um, so just if they could add information on uh, or tell me what else could be an issue. So uh, we can make a plan to eventually taper him off because I definitely don't believe in, believe in pharmaceuticals as the answer. And... Um, Thank you in advance. Um, sobriety is best because of that. And um, there was something else I was going to say about sobriety, but moving on, um, as far as, you know, the body, um, it's just like your mind. If, if it's not in use, it's going to stop functioning properly. And I... Um, spend some time with a lady that she's given up on herself and I can tell because she's overweight severely. She has a lot of midriff bloat and her legs are swollen down to her feet, which means that she's experiencing edema. And I know that edema is one of the first signs of uh, severe kidney dysfunction because of my aunt who is not on this plane of existence anymore. She had that prior to having to go on um, dialysis. And then she ultimately passed away because of um, kidney failure, complication of diabetes. And um, she developed uh, the calciphylaxis. So we went to the gym and I showed her some like kind of easy or modified yoga from what I've been learning and doing. And also, well, she rode the bike that has the arms that you can pull back and forth, so I instruct her on that. And when we were going down the steps, because for some reason the gym we were at, they didn't have an elevator, she said, oh, well, my knees don't hurt so bad going down the steps. That's unusual. And I basically told her the same thing. I was honest with her. I said, if you got to exercise. You have to you have to slowly but surely ease your body into um, a state of fitness, and you have to reject foods that are acidic, food that are foods that are processed, and, and meat it's not doing you any good. And I wouldn't be a good human being if I wasn't direct and tell you that. So I'm planning on trying to find out when she can listen again, but I also know that it's kind of hard for her to exercise because. Ironically, she works at a gym, but the hours must be so demanding that she's tired because of her, the state of her body and the schedule. I'm going to try to work out with her again, but, you know, at this point, you know, your body is literally your the home for your, your life energy. And just like, uh, well, that's a simile, but it's, it's the same with other dwellings that are external to the body, like a home. You have to keep it up. You have to do repairs. You have to upgrade things even, per se, you know, like better windows, better roof, new roof. But it's the same for your body. Things have to be taken in to provide information to the body so it can heal, and you have to move. So what I've incorporated in my workout routine and daily routine are these um, 
It's called um, prim- Primal Movements, 12 Primal, not, not 12, I'm sorry, it's 12 minutes, but it's Primal Movements on a uh, channel called Feeling Young. And uh, you'll know you got there because the gentleman looks to be so-called agent. And uh, you can do it, modify it, and he lets you know, hey, you know, don't, oh, don't move so far into the position that it hurts. Move at your, you know, at where you feel some resistance. And if you can go further next time, you know, go further and pace yourself. So even if it, the clock is ticking for like 30 seconds, even if you only get like five movements in, still try to go through it. And those things will help get the joint spaces, like start getting fluid or gases out of the joint spaces, get the synovial fluid going. I wanted to share that. I feel really good doing those before and after exercise, whether it be yoga or Pilates or or bike riding. Um, and bikes, stationary bikes, if you have arthritis, they're your friend. I, I have two knees messed up from being in the military, and I'm able to run and do other complicated stuff with my knees that I wouldn't have thought I'd have been able to do, along with the yoga. So, uh you know, praises to the yoga. Um, I was listening to the archives and I was hearing about these two uh, victims of racism that bought some land in uh, in Georgia. And there was a non-white, I think, man commenting on people were concerned about them having an all-black town. And I'm thinking, what's the problem with that? Like you just mentioned it too, Gus, suburbs or parts of suburbs where people are, you know, pushed together. Like, since when do you mind uh, segregating black people from you, you know, or or them? Why is that a problem now that they bought this land? Oh, because it's viable land and now you can't monitor them or you can't tax them the same way because it's their land and now they're starting a new township or whatever city or whatever, I don't know. It's you know, you can't win, you can't break even, you can't get out of the game. Um, and then I think I was going to say about, like, the school shootings um, and also thinking about a friend of mine that was successful in getting a religious exemption for her young daughter, six years old, uh, religion-based exemption because, uh, like me, we we practice um, basically the laws of Ma'at which is not necessarily worshiping Ma'at or the 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 Neturu or the gods and goddesses of Kemet. It's just there are laws that say, hey, this is how you maintain balance, which is what Mr. Fuller talked about, and how you can proceed in being in tune with nature. And so she was able to cite how the vaccine, not just COVID, because she had to do an exemption for all, like a litany of vaccines. And she pointed out how these are things that were not naturally derived, how they were not human essences that were put into these vaccines. So we're talking about stem cells from monkeys, um, kidneys from different variety of animals, um, yeast, so forth, so on. Um, and she was, she was able to get that exemption. But with that, you know, having to be concerned about kids at school because of the virus, 
um, because of obviously violence that is ongoing, either by students or people who are not even in school. The curriculum, you know, I've attested to how the kids aren't learning anything but how to be dysfunctional. I want to advocate for people to homeschool. Like if, if you are in a position where you're at home and you have time and you have a spouse that works, especially if you're in a two, two part attempted family survival unit, somebody should be able to dedicate their day to teaching the kids that outside of that institution, um, because it's just, it's whack. I don't know how else to put it right now. I'm a little tired. Um, just, what else? <laughs> the whole, oh, COVID-19 and Africa. Um, I'm with you. I don't, I wonder how much of that number is white people, but this is the other thing that really, um, I'm interested in knowing. All this talk about Africa, 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 Africa. First of all, Africa has many nations in it. Some of these nations are so-called developed and probably would have less infection rates as it is because of better, you know, facilities. But where's the interest? I never hear them say, you know, we really got to vaccine these people in Burma. You know, we really got to get these people in Cambodia and, you know, Indonesia, because they're melanated as well. But I don't hear any talk about Southeast Asia. I don't really hear a whole lot about uh, South America outside of Brazil every now and then. You know, not even Venezuela, one of their so-called, you know, um, uh, adversarial countries and stuff. I don't hear it. Uh, Wait, there was one more thing I was trying to... A memory. Um, I think, you know what? That's it. I can't think of it. Um, you know, just please stay safe out there. And, you know, meditation, um, just literally clearing your mind, breathing, um, doing the exercises, watching what you eat. I just uh, researched and found out that pomegranate has something called pomegranate seeds have uh, punic, punicit, punicic acid in the seeds and the actual, I guess, berry part where the juice is. And, um, that's anti inflammatory, anti carcinogenic, uh, help suppress, uh, diabetes. So, you know, we really gotta be better at being, um, you know, good to ourselves and, you know, being more codified with whatever it is with, that we're setting out to do that day. And um, don't no anti-blackness, you know, it, it's too common. We have so many instances of us taking on these anti-black uh, stereotypes and characteristics. I saw a video like a young lady was rapping about, BDSM, and it's like, haven't we heard this? We've heard this before, but we need to really question, like, why is this what's being pushed, especially during a time like this? You know, we have a war on drugs, we got a war on uh, incarceration, we got a war on a virus, and then we we literally have a war on our minds, the menticides, you know, so that's really all I want to say, and I'm enjoying the book club. I haven't been able to call in. 
but more reason to watch what you eat and what you do. Because if you plan on having kids, knowing that they could um, come out with some not only sexual gender issues or whatever, reproductive issues, but I've seen kids that have anxiety problems for no reason whatsoever, and people would allow these children, teachers and paraprofessionals, to just be angry or just cry, like just sit there and cry, and they would not comfort them. And it was times I would step in and say, come on, hold my hand, let's breathe. You know, so, so many things to consider as we get pushed into um, some type of existence that isn't really existent. You know, we have that going on, too, with the whole, oh, let's go to the metaverse. I'll be here on the surface, on planet Earth, continuing the counter-racism, and I hope you all will, too. Thank you, Gus, for uh, my time. Much obliged, Irie. Bravo for trying to help out some other victims of racism to eat a little bit better and improve their uh, health uh, without having to get some invasive, invasive uh, medical racist to come and give them some pills or surgery or both or whatever it is. Um, super important. I'm always a big advocate folks that are um, either looking to lose weight and make constructive choices to improve their diet especially if it's anything around like i said weight loss sugar elimination get rid of those non-water beverages like that is so many soda and all that like none of that water that's all you're drinking like that can be your reward once you you know meet whatever your fitness goals are whatever you're trying to do that can be a reward you can have you know a non-water beverage uh in limited amount uh, and then we'll get back to water but that is so important for just overall health and well-being uh, so many people Dr. Lathan we talked about that before so many people just drinking more just drinking more water alone for some people can help them uh, in terms of uh, dealing with health problems and can help them lose weight just that alone Dr. Lathan was talking about that a lot of people uh, end up having health problems and fluid retention because they're not drinking enough water so critically important so if that's one thing folks are looking to work on no non-water beverages just water and plenty of it uh, the number again oh and the drug she was talking about her son sobriety would be best man talk about that all the time sobriety would be best uh, Halidin I'm saying it correctly I'm not a medical expert so I don't know about it at all uh, but if we have any folks who have uh, medical expertise I guess you could either if you can dial in now or if you want to drop an email and I can forward or read it on the air at a later date uh, until justice at gmail.com uh, Halidin it's Haldol Haldol there we Hal go Dahl. Hal yeah. Dahl. and I wanted to say hello to hello to the retired firefighter hello and that's all. I'll mute my line. Gotcha. Gotcha. Haldol. Haldol. I was saying it incorrectly. Haldol. So if people with any knowledge around that, um, let us know. Sobriety would be best. Talked about that even came up in the book club with Countdown. She was talking about cannabis and how that is uh, touted, uh, at least all over the states and maybe around the world having all these medical healing properties and all the rest slow down haven't done enough studying on this 
might be some concerns, especially if you're trying to conceive or are pregnant. Definitely slow down, put that down. Sobriety would be best. Um, let's see. Uh, other folks, uh, the number again is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks with a hand up, you have commentary. Our folks get their thoughts together. Let's see. There was a person, they uh, wrote a comment, I guess, uh, on the page online for the broadcast. Uh, They wrote a note uh, and it dealt with reparations. I said, oh, I can deal with this today or I can at least read their commentary today since we had the reparations come up with Barbados. Uh, So they wrote in and this was just uh, like the end of October, so a little over 30 days ago. I'm curious to why the host is opposed to reparations for black Americans. Clearly reparations will not solve the issue, but once those researching come up with an amount, it will at least give a quantitative amount to help black Americans. It will not solve or cure white supremacy, but it will would help a lot of black people out and is well-deserved. And as much as the cows is helpful in identifying racism and helping point it out, what are the answers to solve the problem that is often spoken of until the system of white supremacy is solved, which frankly, I don't see that happening any time soon why would any black person not be pro reparations if nothing else it could assist the host in enjoying seattle a little more with a few more coins which should be a huge pro for the host i guess in this system we live in i don't see any other gestures that will assist black americans black Americans specifically certainly just pointing out white supremacy weekly isn't helping solve the problem if we think white America is going to wake up one day and say we are done with white supremacy that idealistic thought is more far-fetched than reparations sorry if I used any metaphors you certainly did wake up um, not telling this person to wake up that was in the what is that second to last sentence white America is going to wake up metaphor um, Victims guaranteed qualified. I guess the only things I wanted to make sure I pointed out, I said on the program a few weeks back, I am done. Or I guess if you want to use the word opposed, I am opposed to having to listen to any more commentary about reparations. That's what I said. Not I'm opposed to reparations. Uh, We've done whole programs where we've had victims of racism talk about their reparations plan, what it would look like, how much, and blah, 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 and all of that, I have concluded individuals classified as white are not going to do any of that. They're certainly not going to do it in a correct manner. If anything, if they ever do get around to saying, yes, we will give out reparations, everybody will get $5 or 50 cents or $5 million. It'll be people like Gail Lukasik, since we mentioned her, who might end up being the ones who are first in line, in line. Like, see, I already did all the research and I am Negro or at least mixed race. So give me my check. Either way you slice it up, either way it goes, it is not going to solve the problem. White people are not going to do it. That uh, not going to do it. So I said, I'm not interested in having to listen to that anymore. I did not say I am opposed 
to reparations, being accurate with words is one thing that I've suggested that we should do to help solve this problem. Uh, not having, not paying enough attention and being precise, meticulous with our words greatly contributes to this problem. Race soldiers do the exact opposite, especially the more powerful race soldiers. Uh, the other point, uh, I'm not sure if it would help or not. That would have to be decided. Uh, they talk about inflation now, like, ooh, we wait until you see inflation. If they decide, yes, we will give all the black people a hundred thousand dollars, then you will see inflation. So I'm not sure if it would solve any problems or not. As I already said, I don't think they would do this in a manner that would be correct and really, you know, be super constructive for the victims. Uh, 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 let's see. In terms of an answer to white supremacy racism. I've concluded no victim of racism has an answer or we wouldn't have this problem. I certainly have never claimed to have an answer, although I do try to give out suggestions on things that I think it would be constructive to do where I think, hey, this seems like it would be moving us closer to a permanent solution. One of them, as I just said, being more accurate with words. One of them having a more accurate understanding of racism, white supremacy. It seems like most, the vast majority of non-white people don't even have that so it's going to be hard to solve this problem with that and other things eating better lots of things that we try to point out that i think would be helpful but in terms of a permanent solution that will take care of this problem in the next five minutes i don't have that don't think any other victims do either uh let's see uh does that all that i got Uh, this broadcast, I've uh, concluded, this broadcast is not about white America waking up one day and saying they're done with white supremacy racism. I've concluded the exact opposite. Uh, I think it says in the description for this broadcast, the cows is, in fact, not even intended for white people. It's intended for victims of racism, white supremacy. So I at least hope the person, if they maybe just heard one program, if you've heard enough of the cows uh, content, uh, we are at least in agreement there. White people are not going to wake up and voluntarily discontinue from racism. I've also concluded that they're not going to voluntarily wake up one day and say, oh, yes, we will cut a check or make some sort of uh, sincere reparations effort to help aid black people, the very folks that we've terrorized. So anywho, uh, the major point, be very careful strive to be accurate with words especially if you're quoting or talking about something that someone else said gusty never said he is opposed to racism gusty just said i'm not interested in having to hear other people talk about racism other victims talk about racism been there done that doesn't solve any problems and if listening to the cows is not worthy of your time and energy and not helping you solve problems or get accurate information psh, find something better to do with your time and energy said that a few times as well uh, other folks uh, who are with us uh, commentary to share line should be open may I be heard caller in Florida yes sir yes sir thank you very much sir greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I just uh, actually got back from uh, California uh, two days ago. I was 
were actually uh, me, my uh, mom, and aunt was visiting uh, my brother, family member, uh, and I noticed the the term thug was used on a uh, local news broadcast because I believe over there they were uh, making reports about, I guess, some store break-ins. And then I just noticed um, mainly that the the people doing the break-ins, it looks like they, they were younger people but they were wearing a lot of darker clothing uh, and covering their face. And I found that interesting. Um, let's see, as far as the uh, audio segment, there was a particular segment where they were talking about the students in the classroom where they were resistant in opening the door to the, I believe, uh, sheriff. The guy that said that he was from the sheriff's department and it was okay to come out. And I guess that was a white kid, white teenager who's like, uh, no, you know, we're not ready to take that risk. He's like, oh, you know, just, uh, just come on out. This is the sheriff, bro, or something, bro. Um, and then, and then he reacted like, oh, no, that's, that's a, that's a red flag. You know, we're not going to open the door. And I, you know, that was another one because, that's a term that I hear also. Um, and I think that's a term that's generally used toward black people, boss, bro, things like that, those kind of terms. And him, you know, that white child hearing that, he was like, oh, no, no, like, I don't trust that, you know. And he was, and I think also like, no, you, you're supposed to be, Law enforcement, you're not supposed to be speaking in this manner. That's how I, that's how I took that. Um, and I heard the term babyface used to describe the, the, I think his last name was Crumley. Um, when they were showing, uh, one of his, I guess, younger pictures or whatever. So, um, I think that's, uh, being able to detect and uh, analyze the system of white supremacy. Um, I would, I, you know, I agree through words, conversations, making comparisons and things like that. Like I wasn't able to do those kinds of things. Um, and, and then just trying to just be direct as much as you can. Uh, and that's pretty much all I have to say. Thanks for allowing me to share. Much obliged caller in Florida. See, he just got back from California. My goodness. Wowzers. They were talking about all the looting at the stores out in California, even though that did happen in some other locations as well. I think they got hit in, I think, Chicago. And it was a number of places. It wasn't just California, but that was definitely a big one uh, where they had been talking about that and up security and looting and lots of racist components to how that has been discussed even they were saying looting which I mean it is looting but that word lots of people steal they don't always call it looting 
specific instances when they invoke the term looting uh, in the system of white supremacy. And just as you said, I could at least the videos I saw, I couldn't see most of the people that were looting. Uh, they had dark clothing on. I saw that. But in terms of being able to pick out now, is this a white person? Or is this a non-white looter? Like I couldn't, you know, do that. The video was kind of, maybe they got better facial rec, uh, facial recognition technology someplace, but that's not what I had access to. But the way that they have talked about that has been very much, oh my God, you got more of these Negro looters and Black Lives Matter and you can't even have Christmas in peace and that type of thing uh, in California and elsewhere where they've been grousing about all of that. Uh, the I2 uh, the Michigan segment where they had the video of the students in the classroom uh, where the fella came and knocked at the door. It's like, oh, you all can come out and say, they were like, well, we're not willing to take that risk. He said, well, come on, bro. He said, a bro, not that red, red flag. Not it's like, that's, that's generally how I feel too. When some, even when non-wife, even Cal's listeners say, come on, bro. Come on, Gus. Brother Gus, come on. That's exact red flag. Red flag. <laughs> Wait, a Wait a minute. I might get shot. Anything could happen like that. That 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 is not. Yeah, this this is not. This is not help. We're gonna wait this one out, man. Um, but even that, I mean, just words are important. I mean, you know, all jokes aside, words are important. That's why I just said that. Evaluating listening to what people say and evaluate uh you can get a lot of information just paying attention to the details every word about what they say and i mean in that sort of situation oh yeah we're gonna be like extra super certain uh, about what you said and before we get ready to open this door up and i mean even that like that is disgraceful you have to have your children trained in that sort of manner about safety protocols and how do you identify an enforcement officer uh, at 14, 13 years old, uh, in case there's a shooting or a lockdown situation in your school, like that is, uh, mm, that is, that is what we have. So that again, that's just another reminder of why I've been saying for about two years now, no confrontations, no verbal confrontations with strangers in public. You should just be thinking this gal, this guy, this child could be armed. Kyle Rittenhouse, Ethan Crumbly, and parents, and they got him a gun for Black Friday. Like all elements of that story, I just looked at with amazement. Like, wow, Dr. Wells, and when she talks about, don't look at these incidents in isolation. All of this is a part of the culture of white supremacy, racism. Why we keep even having all of these gun incidents. Incidentally, did you even hear that when they went to some of the sheriffs who were buying those illicit guns from the L.A. gun department? They said one of the officers, he had all of these guns piled up. What is all of that? That is white supremacy culture in action right there. The great equalizer. I got to stockpile all these guns. I had to even go out and get stolen guns and ill-gotten guns for what? How many, how much shooting are you going to do? Tiny minority individuals classified as white to dominate non-white people. The majority of the people on the planet might require a lot of guns. Uh, any other comments folks need to get in before we get ready to wrap up? Uh, can I make a quick comment? Yes, ma'am. About the ADOS thing. Yeah, I think what would be better 
after a while as if non-white black people can unify as victims of racism across Maafa, like what Dr. Marimba says, and perhaps with that unity in numbers as a group, we could start to demand things or develop a plan so we could demand things or better yet, just replace the system of justice. But I think it's reification for us to just keep focusing on regionality. You know what I'm saying? It, that's another way. It's another method of divide and conquer. And I would encourage all young non-white people to get a trade in something that is literally constructive, something in infrastructure, because infrastructure is going to continue to get worse and degrade. We're going to need builders and engineers and electricians and plumbers, so forth and so on. And some people also need to dedicate themselves to being educators as well. And that's Thank you. Good night. Much obliged, Irene. Uh, universal man, universal woman. Uh, I think that concept that Mr. Fuller promotes or what we should be striving for uh, I don't think universal man, universal woman would be concerned about a specific location like their block or this specific so-called country or what have you. I think just what it sounds like. Universal man, universal woman. The universe is pretty vast. Anywho's, uh, if folks have any clarification, they can let me know. Or I think somebody did say we already got it that the, I guess the Black Canadians are not included in ADOS or whatever it is. They're not included, and Black Brazilians are not included either. Just looking for clarification. That is all. And and as I said, going back to accuracy, and if it is American descendants of slavery, well then yeah, I would think the Black Brazilians should be included and. Black uh, Canadians should be included. Probably a whole lot of other black people uh, who were enslaved all throughout America, North, South, even Central. I could be an error. Victims guaranteed qualified. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. The goal again. Uh, so we'll be here Monday. Dr. Ryan Martin, white rage. Uh, we'll be looking forward, as I said, uh, the, the shooting shootings plural it's not like it's just one uh the air rage the brawls over the masks and critical race theory in schools the insurrection on january 6th white rage we will talk about it on monday what is motivating all of this behavior has he noticed black people are not outraging in the streets asian black and brown people are not outraging in the streets and on the plains has he noticed that or am i just getting skewed information monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific dr ryan martin looking forward uh much obliged to the folks who tuned in this evening hope it was worthy of your saturday evening uh have a safe constructive weekend hopefully involves eating some quality veggies whole foods nothing processed heard that from uh, Ari in louisiana put down the processed foods as much as you can more fruits veggies get those pomegranates they are in season i love 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 some pomegranates they are a little bit messy to eat but they are so good for you more pomegranates 
uh sobriety would be best count down man if you're not in the book club like i'm not even like plug- we're about to be done so i'm not even plugging like that you listen because this uh, thursday will be the last section so if you didn't listen it'll be in the archives you missed it but wow it has been so informative uh in a way that i guess was just surprising it was different from what i expected but wow sobriety whiskey dick in the last week's section she talked about that she's talked about alcohol almost every week sobriety would be best especially if you are trying to conceive a black child in addition to being sober uh, if you're going out and about Kyle Rittenhouse Ethan Crumbly abound uh, it is not a time for verbal confrontations you should be thinking this could be Kyle Rittenhouse's cousin sister brother uncle in fact, this person could have an entire armed gang at the ready. If you didn't leave your house strapped, ready to kill and die in the next five minutes, exit. Call the enforcement officials as you are vacating the premises, but this is not the time to be getting into some, you know, dispute publicly with a total stranger. Holiday season two, like, yeah. Uh, if you're driving, you're sober, you're buckled up, you are not on the cell phone, uh, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no, uh, and we need our attention. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.